And good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn where anything can happen, anything can be discussed, anything can be controversial, and anything can be part of a trend curve of what's going to happen in the next few days or weeks or months. I mean, have you noticed, a la Art Bell, that this definitely is what he used to call the quickening. Everything is happening at warp speed, including projects to develop vaccines on a very, 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 very fast track. Warp speed. Gosh, I wonder where that came from. Anyway, this morning is going to be a remarkable, remarkable show because we're going to announce a major discovery from Perseverance with evidence, a variety of evidence, independent evidence, independent instrumental evidence, because we have more than one data set kind of converging on the same solution. And it should turn a lot of heads. It should go viral. It should be running around the world. It should provoke an awful lot of questions of our friendly local neighborhood space agency, namely NASA. I mean, have you noticed that NASA is still broken? There are no press conferences on Perseverance. Remember, a $2.7 billion mission, which is kind of sunk like a rock thrown into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean without leaving a ripple. There's no mainstream mention. There's no pundits talking about it. There's no chatter in, uh, in uh, you know, mainstream space. There are, of course, uh, various groups like Reddit and some other specialty sites that are having whole conversations. And there are the specialty, specialty groups like unmanned uh, uh, spacecraft.com and, and some others, the Planetary Society, who are, of course, having their, you know, party kind of behind the scenes because they know everybody and they're getting stuff leaked and all that. But for the mainstream of the world, the Perseverance rover went to Mars, landed, and disappeared. And NASA television is still broken. As I've been saying endlessly now for weeks and weeks, I think it's three weeks now, it's been broken. And I'm on a major satellite cable television service, um, Comcast, which serves tens of millions of people, you'd think that someone out there other than me would kind of complain, would say, why is the schedule still totally bollocked up? I mean, if I had not been taping 24-7 and then doing periodic reviews at 300 times framing rate and then ditching the old programs that are not what I'm looking for, I would have had no idea that in the middle of the night last night at about um, 11.30 p.m. my time, mountain time, here in the land of enchantment, uh, NASA conducted a mini manned space flight. One of the Russian astronauts, cosmonauts, took the Soyuz attached to one of the modules of the International Space Station for a spin. Because in about a month, they're going to be joined by another uh, Soyuz vehicle, MS-18. So they've got MS-17, the previous spacecraft docked 
and they had to move it from where it was docked to another docking port about 90 degrees around the station. And they had stunning video. You know, I was kind of going through the old NASA stuff that I'm taping and discarding everything that doesn't fit into the perseverance category. And I happened to see these amazing images. I mean, I never get tired of live or tape video coming down from the space station because we live on a beautiful, beautiful planet. And the views of the Soyuz against the clouds of the South Pacific, I mean, it was just, it was lyrical. And only someone who was obsessively, compulsively taping everything to see when they're going to fix this would have even found it because there's no schedule. You can't log on to a certain time and say they're going to run a certain thing because they're putting out a schedule on NASA television that bears no resemblance to how it's being aired over at least one of the major cable and satellite outlets serving, as I said, tens of millions of customers. How can you ignore your customers that way? And how come nobody is complaining? Anyway, the mysteries of NASA are confounded because this week, President Biden uh, made known his pick for the new administrator of NASA. It's someone who it says in the article that I have linked as number one in my items and radio with pictures tonight. And for all you new people, let me tell you how to get there because we have radio with images, with video, with some interesting things tonight we're going to get into. So what you want to do is you want to log on to the other side of midnight.com. That's where everything begins. That's our homepage. Click on tonight's banner, which says very provocatively, farmers in the sky, how not to die on a dying red planet with our guest, Ron Gerbron. This is a little project that Ron's been working on for, I don't know how long. It's, it's, it's years. It's, it's many, many, many years. We've had conversations going back many years as to this model, this idea. And tonight we're going to present some extraordinary historic data confirming Ron's model. And who knows where it's going to go from, from here. Anyway, click on that banner, Farmers in the Sky, for Saturday, March 20th. I believe we are officially in spring tonight. I think that occurred somewhere in the wee hours of the morning. So um, welcome to spring in the Northern Hemisphere on planet Earth, all of you listening in the Northern Hemisphere. <clears throat> For you guys in the Southern Hemisphere, it's going to get chilly. So bundle up, you know. Anyway, um, so you click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. And then right under the guest page, it says fast links to items, Richard, Ron, Andrew, because Andrew uh, Curry is going to join us in the third hour for very interesting reasons, as you will see. Anyway, click on that set of fast links that will take you to my items. Item number one, NASA veterans baffled by Biden pick of Bill Nelson to lead space agency. And there's really, um, it's kind of like there's panic in River City. You know, people like uh, John Logsdon, who was at the American University and other NASA experts and pundits and all that are scratching their heads and saying, why would Biden pick Nelson? 
I mean, other than the fact that Senator Bill Nelson, a Democratic senator from Florida, is actually an astronaut as well. He flew on the Columbia one mission before the Columbia died. And there are people in the space community who actually blame him for the astronaut who he took the place of, who then was bumped to the next mission and who died on Columbia in the following flight, which of course is incredibly unfair because NASA has mixed and matched crews going all the way back to the infamous Apollo 13. Remember when the astronauts got the measles and the new guy, uh, Jack Schweigert, had to take over and did a brilliant job, but uh, the old guy, uh, I think his name was Mattingly, he served out that mission in mission control and helped bring them home, and the measles that he was supposed to have been infected with, he never got. So NASA has been substituting crews for decades, so I think it's an incredibly unfair uh, you know, slap against Nelson. He had no idea what was going to happen on the next mission. Nobody did, et cetera, et cetera. So, but they're trying to find some flaw and a lack of understanding as to why the president would pick a politician, a senator, who, of course, is not a scientist, um, to head NASA right now. Now, his deputy administrator is a scientist. She's an astronaut. She's a woman. I mean, everybody's been saying things like, well, he's been staffing his cabinet with all kinds of diversity, you know, black people and female people and <clears throat> Hispanic people, et cetera, et cetera. And they're wondering why he didn't, you know, go for diversity, an interesting term, diversity, uh, for the head of the space agency. And tonight I'm going to cut through all this nonsense because, of course, I think this is a perfect choice. Why? Because if we're right <clears throat> about what we found on Mars, and we are, the evidence is overwhelming. There were a series of ancient civilizations, and Perseverance has landed in the midst of an extraordinary uh, cacophony of ruins, artifacts, buildings, and glass. We're going to get to the glass part shortly. Then, with the Chinese still orbiting upstairs, and the Arabs orbiting upstairs, and the Russians involved with the Israelis by way of the Abraham Accords Agreement with the Arabs, with the United Arab Emirates, and so there by metonymy, they're upstairs. And the whole world is represented by what's either orbiting Mars tonight or sitting on the surface in the form of perseverance. With that as a prelude to what could and probably will be happening next. I know exactly what Biden is thinking. He wants someone who he's known for 20, 30, 40 years in the Senate, someone who he is absolutely certain of his loyalty, his reliability, his competence, and his willingness to follow the lead of the president. Why? Because NASA's suddenly in, in weeks or maybe months at the outset is going to become the center of the storm. And you want someone in that leadership position 
that you can count on in the dark, blindfolded, when the other guy has a gun. And that is Bill Nelson. So this is overwhelmingly interesting circumstantial evidence that the decks are being prepared for the biggest announcement in the modern history of humanity. And so I see absolutely in this pick Biden going for loyalty and competence and someone who can follow his lead when the going gets very, very weird and rough and bizarre and all kinds of things are going to fall out of the woodwork. So if anybody out there is wondering, NASA veterans, why Senator Nelson, it's because the you-know-what is about to hit the rotating kitchen appliance. Moving on. This week was a very interesting week in terms of what can happen next because with the with the passing of the torch from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, there have been lots of questions about what's going to happen to Artemis, the Artemis project, the project that Trump announced to put humans back on the moon, Americans back on the moon, including the first woman astronaut by 2024. And everyone's been looking, you know, for tea leaves and straws in the wind and all those you know, kind of signs of what might happen politically in Washington. Well, as part of that, um, shall we say, trend curve, NASA had an extremely important success this week. They had an eight-minute hot-fire test of the first core stage of the space launch system, which will be the rocket that sends the Orion spacecraft on an orbit maybe at the end of this year, between October and December, we could have an unmanned circumlunar mission, kind of like maybe around Christmas, like Apollo 8, when I got tapped by Cronkite and company to go and help them go to the moon. That was exactly what the producer called me said. He said, Mr. Hoagland, we're calling from CBS News. My, my name is um, Frank Manesis. I'm an, a producer with CBS News Special Events. We'd like to have you come and help us go to the moon. I swear that's exactly what he said. How could I turn it down? And the rest, as they say, is history. So history is about to repeat, except this time on the full-up most powerful rocket ever built, surpassing even in its ultimate incarnation, the fabled Saturn V. The core stage with those four RL-25 engines recycled from the space shuttle program um, fired like a champ for twice as long as they had planned the test. They only needed four minutes of data. They got eight minutes, meaning all the bolts held, all the wires remained connected, the vibration in the frame didn't turn anything off, and with a minor refurbishment, they will now ship this core stage to the Cape by means of the barge. And it will be stacked alongside the solid rocket boosters that will help Orion get into orbit and then fly into an orbit around the moon, circling. I don't remember how many times they're going to do it, but it could be in December. It could be around Christmas time, which would be an interesting historical echo of my first mission with CBS News on Apollo 8 to the moon. Who says history does not rhyme?
Item number three. In this vein that we're going to be talking tonight about lost civilizations, there's a guy in France. His name is, if I can bring it up here, um, his name is, okay, come on, come on, come on. There we are. He's a French diver named Henri Cossier, who's back in uh, 91, stumbled upon the world's only prehistoric cave paintings that can be reached only under off Marseille. When he initially reported this, some Parisian experts laughed off his claims of caveman penguin art as province hyperbole. Well, it turns out the claims were entirely true, and they have now built on land at the Marseille Museum what has been called an underwater lasso, which is that famous cave above water where all those incredible cave paintings The reason this is relevant tonight is because the dating, the radiocarbon dating of this extraordinary find was about between 30,000 years ago in an early period and then about 19,500 years ago. Isn't that interesting? Anyway. That is relevant to what we're going to talk about tonight because we're talking about ancient civilizations on Mars. And the date, as you're going to see, based on the evidence that we've unearthed, is that a term? Unmarsed in Jezero uh, G- Crater, it kind of fits that time frame. And we'll get into long discussions, I'm sure, and maybe even some controversial discussions with my guest, Ron, tonight about the timing. Item number four, um, scientists, and the story in number four is very intriguing. They're basically saying that they want to send an ark, a kind of a Noah's ark, which would include seeds, spores, and DNA, and egg samples from something like 6.7 million species sent to the moon and encased in an ark as a kind of, as they're quoting it, a global insurance policy, a lunar gene bank. And they would literally be kept in this ark that's going to be refrigerated, according to the plan, at cryogenic temperatures in a facility below the lunar surface um, by solar panels and solar energy. And obviously it would have to have batteries and I'm I'm looking at this not so much in terms of its practicality, but in terms of its timing. I mean, the only time that people talk about preserving things for the future is if they somehow think the future is in peril. Does someone know something that the rest of us don't know? I mean, there's been a kind of a spate of these stories relatively recently. Anyway, um, what I'm going to do... For future shows, I'm going to kind of track down some of the guys behind this, and I'm going to see if we can get somebody on the air to talk about the lunar arc, because who knows? It may, in fact, be necessary at some point to avail ourselves of all of this. Okay, this next story is not really a story. It's more like this. This is the sound of the Perseverance rover. 
on the surface of Mars and Sol 16 just a few days ago. Now it's driving. The background hum is the electronics. All those interesting noises are rocks that the wheels, the aluminum wheels, are encountering. The chassis noises, springs and actuators and suspension as it's driving. And then there's that weird, really weird scraping sound. That's a rock hitting the wheel. That's the electronics. Anyway, this is very intriguing, and we're going to get great play in the rest of the show tonight because it's part of our evidence for what, in fact, is really occurring on the planet Mars. And... That's all we're going to kind of say. Okay. Um, Without further ado, that was a kind of an intriguing buildup. Let me introduce my prime guest of the morning. Ron Gerbron is a proudly uncredentialed polymath. He actually went to Stanford and Berkeley simultaneously, and that's an old interesting story, with a proudly uncredentialed and deeply interested history of the study of archaeology. Ron was raised on a farm in Pennsylvania and began his interest collecting arrowheads as a small child. Also falling into uh, underground structures that turned out to be part of the Underground Railway. He found the programmatic aspects of education too limiting after attending a famous Quaker school in Pennsylvania. Ahead of his studies and his time, he attempted to contort himself into attending those two aforementioned universities before he gave up on academia and moved overseas. In all that time, he has focused his core attention on the metrology of our paleohistory, particularly on other planets, especially the planet Mars. Ron, welcome back to The Other Side. Well, thank you, Richard. That was a great intro. I wonder who that guy is. Um, (laughs) He's a guy wearing the black cowl, who is usually, yes, yeah. Wow, wow. No, you know, you, you, I, you, you do kind of resemble the emperor. You know that, don't you? Oh, pa- Palpatine. Oh, great. Uh, can Thea show him that other picture when you get a chance? <laughs> or maybe replace said, his picture with the other picture. Okay. Um, oh, no, that'd be silly. <laughs> I'm not quite yes. sure how we want to do this because I obviously have not gone into any of the evidence yet for the thesis. So, before we go to evidence, why don't we talk about your model, which I had the extraordinary serendipitous honor this week to have found evidence, which essentially I think proves the Gerbron model. So talk about what the Gerbron model is for surviving on a dying planet Mars. Uh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I 
don't know whether to name it after myself or after one of Art Bell's cats, but um, the um, uh, the idea is that if you have some warning that your environment is going to fall apart and you're not going to be able to live there anymore, uh, you build yourself some sort of a shelter. Now, in a larger sense of, of the word, on Earth, something like that happened during the last ice age. We know this because there are various little scattered areas across the area that was subjected to most of the glaciation. One in one in uh, England, two in France, one in Germany, uh, that were ice-free for no particular reason. And the paleontologists and so forth call them refugia. And this was where the origins of humanity lived. Meaning but, refuge, right? Exactly. A place yeah, away from the place. ice. Protected from the right. ice. Okay. Now, hold that thought because you've got Neanderthals in one of them. You've got what are currently called anatomically modern humans in another. And apparently uh, Homo erectus and a couple of other strains of humanity wandering around in some of the others. But the idea was these were uh, literate. Well, there's no better word than refuge. Anyway, on Mars, uh, suddenly Mars was losing its atmosphere. Now, one thing that's guaranteed to happen when that happens, we'll get into the part that Richard, I know, is going to argue with me about in just a moment. Uh, the, uh, the biosphere will collapse. Now, if the biosphere will, uh, collapses, then for sure you're not producing any more oxygen, not unless you've covered with oceans with a lot of active algae, algae in them or something, and uh, that didn't seem to be the case. So uh, the first concern is to keep some air where you can breathe it. And uh, it appears that they were still capable of the mega scale engineering that allowed them to cover an entire crater with a dome. Now, when we're talking uh, craters, what, what scale of craters? Because Mars is covered with all, you know, from craters that are like, like Argyre, which is a thousand miles across, down to little things that are two feet across. Right. I think the two-footers, uh, not so much, but uh, <laughs> what, Jezero is, what, 50 miles across? No, 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 and, 28, uh, 28, round number, 28. 30 miles, yeah. 28, okay. Uh, oh, it's those darn kilometers again. Yep. See, I don't know what, I don't know why they had refuges in France. Look at all that it ended up giving us with the metricism. Rommel, rommel, rommel. Uh, the, uh, anyway, uh, there, there are some possible disputes over how that could be done, but the plain fact is anybody that's seen uh, that movie, The Truman Show, that yeah. was in a gigantic that, – that was the set for that uh, supposed TV show was a, a dome covering an entire city, and it was completely climate-controlled and everything else. And everything in there, aside from the scale, is completely within current technology here. Admittedly, we're not racing against this thinning atmosphere, but you see, that's an important point. Well, then I found something that uh, intrigued me when I was checking to make sure that I was up to date on the planetary physics uh, decisions about how old things were and where the rocks came from. And they make a big deal out of one simple signature that the Martian rocks that they find in meteorites and compare with samples are about 4 billion years old. And that, well, okay. Well, if the planet was doing fine in its earlier orientation, namely the satellite of something else, uh, some large planet that's now gone, that was uh, Dr. Tom Van Flanderen's model. 
uh, the exploded planet hypothesis. Hey, hold, hold it there. Yeah. We're at the bottom of the hour. Yeah. My guest this morning is our own Ron Gerbron, really kind of walking on cloud nine, because we found evidence this week that confirms his domed-in crater model for the last 40 or so thousand years of the inhabitants of Mars before they had to leave and come here. And if you notice something familiar in the background, I've often said that Mars is a kind of an areographic landscape for Lawrence of Arabia. So tonight we're going to dip in and out as we listen to the other side of midnight and an historical development that is going to change our history. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Welcome to the other side of the news, where they're open to hearing the truth and take it seriously. The first thing you got to look at is the methods, like nothing else matters, because that's where they describe the experiment. So then you can decide if what you can conclude from the experiment, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And that, that's really, really important because... You know, they make false claims and people don't understand how to use statistics and all these things could be misleading. What I notice that they do now is they put the methods section at the very end. And in some papers, it's in a separate document that's like an addendum. So in other words, they just present the, the results and conclusions and an introduction section and nobody looks at the methods. But that's the most important thing, because if you don't know that, you don't actually know what they did. Because, you know, there's a lot of art to experimental design. And, uh, you know, some people can be very clever about it. Some can be very elegant about it. But there's also, like, many ways that things could be fudged. And there's books on this, right? Like one of Bill Gates' favorite books, How to Lie with Statistics. And, you know, you have the John Ioannidis article, which is one of the most highly cited papers where he says more than half of all published research is false. Right. So mm-hmm. but but how many scientists, when they go to read a paper, say there's a 50 percent chance that this article is false. So I better read it really carefully. Right. They don't do that. But all this clinical research, it's really just it's really marketing. It, that, that's what it is. It's not actual research. With this, the vaccine trials, you know, it, it's just they basically designed it 
exactly perfectly to show what they could say. You know, that bogus 95% effectiveness. Uh, that's the, the relative risk reduction of having a test and it's not even the overall risk reduction would be like 0.4%, but they describe it that way. It's a statistical trick where they could say 95%. And they also defined the outcome and then they had to wait seven days after the vaccine, but all the people who got sick within that seven days didn't count. You know, all kinds of uh, tricks. Why. They're 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 experts at this. They know yeah. they know what they're doing, and and it's really hard to even figure out what they're doing. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this March 20th, the first day of spring here in the land of enchantment. We're talking about Mars tonight, endless sands and dunes, and it turns out ancient cities, some of them under domes. In fact, some of them, where we are tonight on Mars, where Perseverance landed under a still partially intact dome. And yes, that's an extraordinarily controversial statement. Well, we've got some equally compelling evidence to support that statement. So as Lawrence rides off into the sunset, Ron, you are back on. Why don't we pick up where we left okay. off? Okay, we're talking about building a dome over a whole crater. Yeah, I, I noticed it was Gale that I was thinking of when I cited the size before. Gale is larger. Gale crater where curiosity. Yeah, it's, a, it's is, about 100 miles, down. yeah. Yeah, 96 actually. Diameter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but again, you got that 3.8 billion years old thing. See, that's not – the 3.84 billion years old is not the important detail because – Everything, all that, uh, all those planets, all that ground, all those rocks, everything that became meteors and asteroids, it was around already. Okay, so we know it's that old, but it's what happened after that. And in the case of Mars, uh, as far as I can tell, and I was surprised by this, uh, it wasn't as damaged as one might think by losing its parent planet. It depends in a lot of ways on how that planet died. If it disappeared because somebody dropped um, red mercury on it, like in the Star Trek movie, and basically sucked itself into a black hole, um, that would create a perturbation. But well, wait, 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 wait. You, you're, you're ignoring Tom Van Flandern's extraordinary copious evidence that something blew it to smithereens, ejected most of the mass uh, past the escape velocity of the sun so it never returns, and the very long period fragments are in these huge looping orbits that reminded him of the Soviet uh, FOB system, the fractional orbital bombardment system, which is where he got the idea and the celestial mechanics. I mean, that was his expertise, a profound expert in celestial mechanics. 
And that's how he put together the idea that these long period comets cross the plane of the solar system, indicating that they originated. If you put all those orbits back together, like a FOBs explosion in Earth orbit, and that was where he got the idea for looking at these uh, long and medium-term cometary objects that wound up with millions of years um, cycle times, orbit times, and how he reconstructed the idea that there used to be a planet, probably somewhat bigger than Earth, what they now call a super-Earth, maybe two or three times the mass of the Earth, which was orbited by its own retinue of satellites, And for some reason, about 66 million years ago, if that date sounds familiar, we're going to connect the dots momentarily, it blew up. And he was looking, of course, before he died, under very mysterious circumstances, for a natural cause, that there's something in the cores of planets that after a certain amount of time, hundreds of millions or billions of years, something happens and they depending upon other factors, can literally blow up. He never was able to identify the energy source of what could do that. We, of course, have torsion field physics and the hyperdimensional model, and we know exactly how that can work. And it also can be turned into weapons so that an extraordinary super civilization in a civil war with itself or in a competing war with another super civilization could easily, <clears throat> uh, Dr. Kildare, uh, blow a planet mm-hmm. up on a Thursday afternoon. And, the, and the, the, the results, the effects would be identical because the, the technological signature would be the same as the natural signature. We really well, don't Richard, have a re- – go ahead. Yeah, the, uh, I tend to favor uh, a model like that. But I was just laying out the options. Which one? The well, natural the, uh, or the artificial? Uh, it actually doesn't matter which it is, although I, I tend to agree with you that it was probably um, somebody – it was either misadventure or warfare. And see, I, I call that the Krypton model because Krypton was Superman's home. Mm-hmm. It was blown up, blown up from the, just like a firework. And that would mean that the core exploded, which is what they talked about, which is why I was referencing that Star Trek movie where they tried a different attack on the same thing, attack the core and get rid of it. But in the case of most of those, at least the ones that are posited to create uh, the asteroid belt and so forth, it's currently it's not in favor to credit the whole asteroid belt to that one planet. They said things were smashing into each other with great abandon for quite a length of time when this, in the early years of the solar system. Well, wait, wait, wait. wait. Uh, if you add up the mass of the asteroid, they don't make anywhere near a planet weighing two or three times the mass of the Earth. They're a fragment of what was left. Yeah. Because remember, well, there would fly out of the orbital plane. I mean, unless it's it does like it stayed in the plane. it does. You know, there well, there what there are asteroids at all different inclinations. There are comets. And then there's a residuum, which is in a kind of a contained belt around the sun, the asteroid belt. Um, that's, that's the lowest energy debris that didn't make it out of the plane of the orbit. Now, one of, right. the, one of the effects of this, again, according to Tom, was that this explosion released uh, its satellites. And there were two. One was Mars. 
which then took up an elliptical orbit around the sun as a separate body, a separate, you know, planetary body. And the other, he thinks, was an ice world, an ice moon that subsequently many millions of years later, like about 3.2 million years from now, back in time, ahead of now, it blew up as kind of a long, slow-burning fuse from the physics effects of whatever blew up its primary planet. And there are interesting spikes at those time frames in terms of cometary orbits and, and uh, debris and all that that Tom used to reconstruct this model. So, yeah, it doesn't really matter whether it was natural or a war. The result was Mars in the model was liberated to be its own planet. And it had its primary literally blow up in its front yard, <clears throat> which was a very, very bad hair day for Mars. And you and I uh, differ somewhat. Nope. Yeah. yeah. I, well, most of the uh, most of the destruction that they that the mainstream talks about with uh, planetesimals, that's small stuff. Um, recent uh, additions to the Minor Planets League, like Pluto, they uh, while they're smashing into each other and stabilizing orbits, uh, it causes all sorts of damage. But when a uh, when a sizable body breaks up. It doesn't explode. See, that's the problem. It just shears apart. And if it just falls apart, basically, uh, which is what would have likely happened. No, with, no, no, uh, no, no, pale face. Yeah. It doesn't do that because otherwise you wouldn't have the material, most of it in Van Flandern's calculated model, pushed to escape velocity. It didn't just quietly no, fall apart. Hit. It blew up. Not the whole Right, the pieces that are where it's stri- where it's stri- where it where anything is struck, it fractures, it breaks apart. Pieces are flung off. I mean, remember we have those shergatite, so-called shergatite meteorites that are the meteorites that originated on Mars, and a single strike of some sort went right down into. And somebody actually has a theory for this that it was it was a crater called Mojave, and Mojave crater and blasted them out of there. I don't know how yet that they determined that they all came from the same place, but it's uh, they say their analysis is good. We'll see. Uh, anyway, and somehow they reached escape velocity just from the impact of that, just like something that strikes the Earth may fling things into no, the wait, stratosphere. You're talking about an impact on Mars relatively yes. recently, a few million years ago, which spalled out that left Mars because they exceeded the escape velocity of Mars, Orbited around the sun countless times before something entered the Earth's atmosphere and a piece of it survived and it's picked up. I think it was picked up in the uh, Egyptian deserts as this uh, particular class of meteorite. And the reason they attach it to Mars is because the isotopic signature in this class, Turgotite meteorites, is identical to the Viking isotopic analysis of Mars' atmosphere and the surface chemistry of Mars. Correct. That, 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 Correct. That's that connecting link. Right. Yeah. The only que- the only question in my mind is the uh, whether they all came from the same crater. Which currently that's the theory. A crater called Mojave is where they all uh, where they all came from. At least the ones that have been recovered. Now, of course, if they recover something that they determine has the same isotopic ratios, but clearly couldn't have come from there, when we get a little more. Um, 
on the ground data from Mars, then somebody will change their mind. Let's go back to the agricultural domes, doming in craters. To yeah, okay. All right. Good idea. Well, the point is that um, the, simplest, uh, the simplest form of shelter, if you have the engineering to do it, would be to whip up a dome. And the, thing that, the reason that I'm stressing about how the planet broke up and released Mars is that they had more time to do this than might seem apparent. It's not like they said, uh, oh, my goodness, in three years, the planet that we're circling is going to blow up and we're all, we're all going to die, so we better figure out how to get out of here. Uh, no, they, they had something that went a lot slower. And, in fact, the model shows, and this is from mainstream papers, not talking specifically about that, but talking about the loss of the atmosphere from Mars. And I'll tell you why it works. Uh, the, uh, they, it's somewhere around 10,000 years before it would get to the point where it is now. But all of this is posited on the atmosphere, whatever its composition. Like I said, in the mainstream, you can't say too much. They can't claim that it had an oxygen-rich atmosphere at a certain point. But even when they fudge the data, they can't fudge the math. And they had thousands of years to do this. So they had plenty of time to try and deal with it. got somewhat uncomfortable right away. But the point about strikes is that in a dense atmosphere, a direct strike coming straight down, smash like you would do if you were, if you were aiming an asteroid at a city, uh, a very popular theory of warfare, which I, I hope nobody's figured out how to do yet, uh, that causes negligible effect in a thick atmosphere. Hardly any. It, uh, the catastrophes, yes, but think about it hitting water. Something hits the water straight on, boom. You get ripples, you get a shock wave, which moves mostly up somewhat to the side. But if it comes in at an oblique angle, that is the, the more of an angle, the better, then you tear up a lot more atmosphere on the way down. The shock wave from the strike is not blocked by the actual impact itself, but think of a, think of a rooster tail that uh, you, uh, develops behind a jet ski. Yeah, I think we're like getting that. too Most deep in the weeds. Limited. Let's stay big picture, all right? So you have a catastrophe. Okay, well, would... You have a catastrophe. Yeah. Mars is, so I... in this model, Mars used to orbit this planet. The planet blew up. Right. Mars right. lost well, a lot of its atmosphere. It's orbiting the sun. To scare them. All by its, well, remember, everybody on the planet was killed. You know why? Would you like a Richter 12 planet-wide earthquake? See, I've, I've done some actual numbers on yeah. this. Nobody on Mars survived. The people who survived <clears throat> to repopulate Mars was the rest of this super civilization living in the rest of the solar system. So they came back to salvage as much of Mars as they could. And because people have an affinity for home, they repopulated Mars with now a drastically depleted atmosphere, which because it passed that tipping point, it now would go away. I, I call this the Lowellian right. model of Mars, where yeah, the, that, the Martian atmosphere is maybe a tenth of what the Earth's atmosphere is now. And so things like solar wind, things like uh, slow leakage, temperature in the exosphere, 
over time. Remember, we have millions of years, and it gets progressively worse and worse and worse. And at some point, depending upon whether you retain your technology or you don't, you, if you're stuck on Mars, you're going to die. And so in the interim, and I'm looking in now the last like 40,000 years, the last Martians where they turned out the lights had to come to the only place in the solar system, which was lush, almost paradise by comparison, namely here. And that time horizon, 40,000 years, is when these astonishingly, incredibly sophisticated cave paintings suddenly appear. That's why the story about the guy off Marseille, I think they were painted by homesick Martians and they could never go home. They had to live here. They were in in some sense invaders to the native species of Homo sapiens already here on earth. And that sets up a dichotomy which I think we are living out to this day. But in that last 40,000 years on Mars, going back to your model, the only way they survived with somewhat contemporary technology, because we're almost there, we're so close to being there, look at Musk, look at some of his rather far out ideas, would be to basically create air and food sources in as many of these refugees refuges as possible namely domed in craters if you can't if you can't terraform the whole planet if that's beyond your technical means at least you can contain biospheres in limited scale environments scattered around mars that's been your model and now because of the landing in jezero and the information and data we're going to you know impart tonight that model yeah. is well on its way Run to being confirmed. But we still have a contentious point about whether anybody stayed on Mars. See, I don't think that it had to be people that weren't there anymore. There's no reason why people could not have survived it. Remember, for one thing, Mars doesn't have the tectonic plates that Earth does. So it wouldn't it would shake, it would rumble, it would even it would bounce things up in the air. It would take care of pretty much everything. Wait, wait, wait. You understand that, that every number in the Richter scale is 10 times more energetic than the previous one. Oh, I do. Imagine three twelves. There's never been a 12 on Earth, ever, ever, ever. The largest in the geologic record, there's been like three of them. That's the, well, know. we don't know. The estimates are yeah, well, let, look, let's not get mired in arguments you and I have all the time behind the scenes. Let's get on with the model, yes. okay? Okay. Yeah, well, well, it's important to the model that there be somebody there because the what really killed Mars was the fact that because of its disruption and the uh, leaking atmosphere, which they surely would have lost some of, um, no matter how the uh, thing uh, was destroyed, the biosphere collapsed. See, that's why you have to build the domes. That's the point I was trying to add. You have to have a place where you can grow things. And that's why uh, I think it's number two in my... Uh, picture section there's a there's one of the first depictions of that it wasn't from there but it's from an old movie called silent running ah, one of my favorite last, films with bruce dern show yes yeah, shows earth's last forest drifting off to an uncertain future after everything on remember earth has been huey destroyed. louis and dewey right <laughs> well tell people oh, what huey louis and dewey were Oh, they were the predecessors to like R2-D2 and the uh, exactly. droids in um, 
yeah, it's uh, those big name producers all swipe stuff from other people. Um, anyway, yes, it was a pretty good movie for its day. I mean, the special, you know, most of the, they kept it mostly indoors. <laughs> so they didn't have to compete with the space effects that we take for granted now in a TV show. Uh, but they, uh, yeah, they did a good thing. They had little, little maintenance robots. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of them, uh, one of them was deceased early on in the movie. And uh, they, but one of them survived to accompany the la- Earth's last forest on its new voyage towards a nearby star system, if it ever got there. Uh, the point is that that's exactly what those zones are for, to preserve things. And a nice round crater is a perfectly good place to lay down a foundation and build it. And it could be done in a remarkably short time frame if you're motivated enough, which I am quite sure they were. But if it was only people in orbiting ships and so forth, without any known colonies that we can refer to, then they would have had to have some equipment. So they'd have to use the stuff that was still there while it still was. In any case, they accomplished it somehow. So you have a dome over Jezero, you have a dome over Gale, you have domes over other um, places, and there's evidence that we won't get into tonight that other parts of the solar okay, system... Okay, let, let, me, let me just ask in. a kind of a nitpicky question. Um, yes. Why would you dome in a crater as opposed to building a freestanding dome on a flat piece of desert? Because all of Mars was because desert. you because you need the water. The uh, one of the things that happens most of the water on Mars is uh, under the ground. They used to think it all is current mainstream opinion is that it's tied up in minerals. And in other words, there's an awful lot of the, of the minerals in the regoliths are almost 50% water in terms of what you could cook out of them. And that's where a lot of the water went. There are also these huge, like, they're like veins. They're like, they're like veins in a, uh, or, uh, in a body or um, the um, sap tracks in a tree that uh, are full of um, organic matter and they're saturated with ice. Now these, now these 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 are models, right? These are not measurements. No, this is stuff that is that is said by the mainstream to exist. That a lot of the water is a few meters under the surface of Mars, and it's trapped in what we'd call clathrates here. So it's basically I mean, permafrost. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, pretty much. But these are these are localized, and the uh, for your Lowellian model, which I heartily endorse, the uh, idea that somehow carried over that uh, when he was looking through telescopes and when Schiaparelli was looking through telescopes of uh, canals on Mars to carry the water was just almost an instinctive truth. It, the, uh, the, there's miles of ice at the polar caps, at least one of them. Well, it's uh, one of them's CO2, the other one is mostly water ice. And they're thinking now that the... Um, the north cap that's got that that's mostly water ice. Right? No, it's it's the south cap is water south. ice. The north okay. cap is, but the south cap also has a frost cover of frozen CO2 dry ice. But it's right. been measurements by spacecraft that shown, <clears throat> in terms of density measurements, that there's a tremendous amount of ice at the south pole. It acted as a coal trap. Yes, and uh, in fact, that's one that one of the things they refer to that um, Korolev. 
crater. That's one of the pictures there. Mm-hmm. As I didn't give you a picture that it's easy enough to come by. One of the straight-on shots from the ESA, from the Mars Express. Uh, but it, it literally does photograph like a um, a pie. You know, it looks like, <laughs> looks like whipped cream or something on the top of it. The whole thing is frozen over. Uh, it's one big solid block of ice, uh, they say. But if you take a look at um, the, um, let's see, which one is Korolev? The, um, the, these things always go up at the last minute. Uh, Richard, help me out here. I'm not seeing the show page. What, that's, I'm looking which is for Korolev. I don't see Korolev. Did you give it another name? No, 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 no. Don't fret, folks. It's right in front of us. We're just... Um, I don't see a crater in Korolev. So, well, it's anyway. The uh, uh, well, we have some. Why? Oh, wait, 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 wait. Here it is. ExoMars, which is a new spacecraft. That it is a Korolev crater, unenhanced, and the number yeah. is uh, number eleven uh, in your you. yes. in your listing. Yes. Yeah. In Ron's radio folks, picture I'm, section. Yes. And my access to the radios and picture sections is a little slower than all of yours because I'm doing this from my phone. Sorry. But um, the um, down there on a – yeah, if you look at that, I mean, that's pretty good for an unenhanced image. And look at that. Now, what is that in the upper uh, left, Richard, that's arcing over toward the main mass of ice there? Mm, I don't know. It seems to have some kind of geometry to it. Uh yeah, all those. Uh, well, there's a lot of geometry in there. Yeah, but like I'm talking very really fine long. scale. It looks like lattice work uh, just at the edge of resolution. Uh, then I see a whole bunch of other stuff that looks like ice, uh, streaks of ice, very polar, a lot of very bright white stuff, uh, and then this gauzy stuff that looks like break time. You know, oh, you're right. My gosh, you're absolutely right. Okay, I'll tell you what. Hold it there. Um, let's pick this up on the other side. I will do this and then that. Here on the other side of midnight, my guest this morning is Ron Gerbron. We found some striking evidence in favor of his doming over craters to survive on Mars model. And we will get to the evidence when we return. Don't touch that dial. Support the other side of midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. 
To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed, and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. And if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. When I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. Welcome back, everyone, for this Saturday night, March 20th, first day of spring. Spring has sprung. My guest this morning, Roger Braun, is going through his uh, agricultural crater dome model. Why don't we talk about some of the evidence you've been amassing over preceding years before we get to the heart of the matter, which is what we've just discovered in Yezero? Uh, good idea. I was just going to suggest that we shouldn't subject the audience to something sounds like it was taking place in a late night coffee shop in a college town. Because <laughs> uh, uh, we're not going to resolve that right now, but the audience is free to make up their own minds about it. The point is there were at some point, whether they came back or stayed there, some Martians that did this stuff. And there's a perfectly good reason. If you look on uh, my images at number, um, finally got them to work, number three. Number three. That yeah, that's a that's a combination shot from um, the uh, Mars Science Laboratory, known to its friends as Curiosity, which is still chugging around over in that other crater, Gale. And the two frames that I had to stitch together to get the whole thing centered with some context, but there's a close-up of the important thing in the lower part. And of course, you click on them, you get a bigger view. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, People accused, have accused that of being all sorts of things, uh, but for some reason, maybe it's because I did grow up on a farm, it, it reminded me of a piece of farm equipment. I'm you know, thinking it looks more like a V8 out of an old um, 
Chevy Oldsmobile. Yes, I've heard that as well. And there's definitely <laughs> a plumbing aspect to it because of those two little bell-shaped things at its top. Uh, there were hoses connected there. And you can see right over on the right edge, that's why I included the wider shot. If you want to blow that up, you can see what the rest of that looks like. But there's some less discernible uh, smashed things over there to mm -hmm. the right of the of the green monster. And you can see that there is a tube that runs between them. It's got a piece of it missing in the middle and where it's broken apart. But I thought, okay, that looks like irrigation equipment or maybe part of a colander uh, threshing machine. I, it just felt that way to me. And I, it, it definitely looks thinking. mechanical and there's all kinds of other mechanical bric-a-brac surrounding it. Like over on the far right in the wide angle, there's an eroded oh, box. Yes. Looks yeah. like everywhere, yeah, everywhere, everywhere. Okay. So who left all and this it, stuff and what was its purpose? Do we know? I mean, there's, there's no way we can know. So what's the point well, of bringing us to this artifact? Uh, it's an example of the fact that there was land that that's, is possibly flat because it was tilled and they grew things there. Okay. You remember at this point in time, there's basically no organic material left in the, in the regolith. That's why they call it regolith instead of dirt. And you need that organic part of the material to um, grow things. And although the, uh, the few minerals that might be needed for fertilizing a crop are easily applied, and the experiments have been done with uh, analogs to Martian soil and lunar soil, and things seem to grow just, just fine. So it could be done, but it's, uh, every, every organic thing is rotted out of there, or at least they're not telling us that if they find it in the, in the measurements. Okay, number, uh, now number one, everyone should stare at, because this is the key to all understanding all the hyperdimensional physics. It's a graphic uh, representation of the uh, Laplace resonance between three of Jupiter's moons. And you can notice by the little sparks of color that appear whenever any two of them are in conjunction. And however long they do this, and because that means that there's a slight gravitational tug each time that happens. And this affects things, but it also stabilizes the situation. So, in fact, there is never a point when there's a three-way conjunction. There. Okay, why are we talking about Jupiter when we're looking at domes on Mars? Well, it affects everywhere. And if people stare at that long enough, they'll be hypnotized and they'll believe anything. <laughs> come on, uh, come that. on. No, it, well, I wanted to stick in the uh, Gleesey uh, 8... eight 46, the, uh, which is 15 light years away, uh, astronomers have determined that they have a three-way Laplace resonance there, the first one they've ever seen, because they've detected four planets, and three of them have that same kind of synchronization, but they occasionally have a three-way. I think I'm losing so Mars in this. Well, how does this connect to Mars? Oh, everything is better when it's broader. Uh, the uh, Okay, number the one that's number four, that's just a Percy image used to that. But number five is, is kind of important because the upper part, that is in Utah. The clue might be the tree, since we already established that Mars is kind of short on trees right now. Right. It's on some Indian land, so I can't say anything more of it than that, but that's petrified wood there. And you look down below it from Gale Crater, and you see a lot of things that look like No, wait, wait. Hat. You're saying that all the layered stuff in the top part with the tree on the right and the layered stuff on the left, that layered stuff is... It used to be a tree? 
it used to be organic materials of some sort. Okay. Remember, you can get yeah, it's fossilized something. That's All what right. they claim it as. It's All a local. Right. It's a local. It doesn't look like it to me, but that's what they claim it as, and it certainly is rocks. Okay, number six, you've got. No, 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 You're skipping what? the bottom part of that montage. Oh well, that's from uh, that's just a curiosity shot. There's many just, spots. But what's the relevance to the top part of the picture? Uh, do you not see a family resemblance? No, you have to say it. It's radio. You have to describe it. If not everyone's looking okay. at these images. Folks, there's a lot of we're looking at a lot of layers. The the one on the top, because it's brownish, looks like a uh, huge pile of flattened cardboard boxes that have been rained on a couple times. So they've started to wilt a bit. Mm-hmm. And the one on the bottom is more of a greenish tone. But uh, it's very hard to stretch typical sedimentary rock explanations uh, to fit something like that. So it was uh, it was manufactured material, like the Russian, the Russian, the Martian equivalent of um, uh, gypsum siding. That uh, has been effect, was affected by some water and some time, and is kind of slumped down. Um, that would take a lot of pictures to illustrate it correctly. It's just to get the thought in your head that they they used to have wood, they used to have trees, they used to. Now the uh, as far as I can determine, the flora and flora there, I don't know about the fauna, was uh, about like uh, well, coincidentally prior to that 66 million years ago that uh, Richard referenced. It was uh, dinosaur era stuff. Big trees that looked more like gigantic stalks of celery and um, you know primitive plants, but recognizable plants, but they had plenty of stuff to work with. And uh, I think some of that ended up petrified and that's solid because they were using it for building materials. Hmm. Remember most of the architecture on Mars is not the high class advanced futuristic looking sort that we get used to like that picture from exomars of korolev that looks like pretty advanced architecture that's in there and if you look at number six compares a picture on the right from mariner four the first real good look we got at the surface with a something from the mars reconnaissance orbiter and um, I think you can see a lot of similarity in the configuration there. I think they knew what they were I, they knew what they were looking at from all the way back from Mariner 4, which was 1965. Uh, right. So they had a bit of a head start on this because if you look at the stuff on the left, uh that's what gets in at me into trouble arguing about domes all the time because you see that lattice work on the, uh, it's kind of obvious on the all the white stuff on the left, mm, bluish yeah. white, yeah, yeah, looks very bluish, yeah, very architectural, very geometric. It's absolutely geometric, and yet it's not the traditional kinds of triangles nor the simple panes, the two ways that you would normally see it configured here. It's uh, it's um, irregular, and it's like it's intentionally irregular. Mm. You know, it's, I'm always uh, I, I find it fascinating they did it that way, but there are indications that there are whole domes like that. And you want to blow up any other part of the picture, you can see all the Martian buildings you like because there's a lot of them right mm-hmm. around in that area. Yep. And um, that's why I rush through these because there's so much to see that pointing out one, you know, it's like wasting the picture to show one thing. In fact, number seven is more of the same. That's just buildings. 
And if you, if I had included a larger wait, 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 version of now this is from the European ExoMars mission. No, no, no. Only that one picture is from ExoMars. These are both uh, Mars reconnaissance. Oh, okay, shot. okay, MRO. Okay. Put the image numbers on them because it's from, they're from two different images. Right. I I do that as much as possible because uh, people that are prone to not want to see this, which is a real problem when people are looking at stuff that doesn't compute by their uh, ingrained standards, so they just don't want to see it at all. So it's so two is better from two different places, so they can't say, well, that was some anomaly. I can't explain it, but it's just some anomaly. Mm-hmm. That's not. It's that's called not. independent and, confirmation of the model. Yeah, and so I, it's, that's to show there's a limitless amount of it. And thanks to Richard's efforts recently, the um, <coughs> oh, excuse me, um, this business about the glass has been resolved rather well. And so you can just poke through the rest of those, those of you that can look at the pictures. On number eight, uh, there's an Easter egg for you on the top section, because if you look right in the middle of the top edge, and I had no choice in the framing there because that is literally the edge of the reconnaissance orbiter shot, uh, you will see a uh, very clear depiction of fellow apparently blowing a flute or something, and he might be wearing horns. My God! It was Are we talking in the exact center of the frame, up very near the top? In the brownish. In yeah, the brownish yeah. Stuff it's a, and it's the bluish stuff on the left, and the bluish stuff on the right is right in the middle, and it looks like uh, like like a petroglyph. Yeah, absolutely. And if you like, yeah, you look at the larger image and go in as far as you can, and you say, "Oh my goodness, there's a depiction of someone blowing a flute or something." Mm-hmm. Um, and the lower one is, of course, right in the middle of the picture. Uh, what do you see there? See those eyes staring out at you? Richard? I don't. Well, you mean below the top the of cap- that rectangular thingy? Two dark eyes, uh, yeah. the nose tilted at an angle to the left? Right, and the, and the furry little snout. You, you mean the cat. It's right in the center of the image. Yeah, I'm, 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 it looks like a, a, a cat with a deep hangover. Right, and actually sort of merged into the top of him, maybe only certain people will see it, there is, looking in the same direction, a um, darker-skinned human of some sort. See, I'm always very uh, leery of these, these you know, resemblances, because pareidolia yes, is really rampant. I prefer geometry, like the geometry, the stunning geometry yeah. this stuff is contained in, which looks like shattered metal, looks like ripped metal in that symmetrical arch <clears throat> above your faces, that looks like uh-huh. a box. And it looks like... Oh, it's a building. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you know, it's a huge building. Uh-huh. That, to me, is yeah, more impressive a- than the effigies. I'm very, very leery of effigies. Very, very. Well, call, call it... A, I know you are. That's why I put, that's why I put it in there. It's a it's combo punch. It's got something for everybody. It's got... You got your geometry. You got your mathematical measurements. You got your proportionation. You got uh, mm-hmm. faces. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, number nine. Now, this leads us into the subject of the night, actually, because I think most people get the grasp the concept that if you can manage to build a dome over someplace, then you've got a safe place to live. And, you know, we could spend hours detailing theories on how they would have constructed it and what capabilities it would have. Uh, was there a force field involved? It doesn't matter. They did it. They were there. The people lived there. 
and they did it because there was water. Because smashing into the ground like uh, something creating a crater does makes those places where there, there is water, the springs, the underground water has a place to come up. So if you warm the area up, you're going to have water just gushing out of the ground, all you possibly want. Now, number nine is a picture of uh, Endeavor Crater when um, Opportunity finally got down to the bottom of it. I believe it's Endeavor. And um, the, uh, up in the upper right corner, you'll see a little bit of the famous blue Martian sky. And uh, the, that was usually easy to spot on the um, Opportunity and Spirit pictures. That's why I liked going through them, because in order to do color, you had to do a triplet. That is, you had to, you had to take three frames and um, create, you know, RGB from them. Red, and they green, took a lot and blue. Of yes. They, they got a... Well, look at all that junk on the back wall. There's, there's that, yes. Oh, there's, well, there's yeah, piping, there's brackets, there's all kinds of mechanical junk, which should not exist on Mars. And then we have this fan of blue stuff, which you think go. is... Sand. Well, it's glass, but it's uh, crushed up. It's broken glass. And the reason it's so blue? Uh, well, look at the sky above. You mean in the upper it's right, that little sky. sliver in the upper right corner showing that right. the sky on Mars is blue. So you're saying that this is simply an expanse of reflective, ground-up glass from a former dome reflecting mm-hmm. the sky, which is blue. Why is the right. sky blue, Mommy? Well, um, Rayleigh scattering. <clears throat> <laughs> Sorry, I stole that from you. The uh, yeah, number ten. Here's some more. Here's some more, and it introduces another problem. The uh, lots more blue sky, and this is another shot from uh, uh, Opportunity. And I couldn't figure out why in the black and white. Which actually, you'd have to go all the way. I hate to make you jump back and forth, but this is my fault. Uh, if you go all the way down to 13 and just take a quick glance at it, you will see on the upper left, the black and white shot is what the original frames look okay, like. Obviously, I'd use three, but they all look the same. So this that shows how like you're putting that. your triplets together. Right. And so the first one there, that's black and white. That shows you. That's, I said, why the hell is it all bleached out? Sorry, all the... Uh, white it out on the bottom. Right. And there's only a few like that. And so then I put them together and I get, as you'll see on there, weird colors. Well, the, um, and that's a progressive thing. I just put those three triplets together without doing anything else to them and you get the one in the middle. And it's still, there's that uh, heavy fog at the bottom. And I said, that's not a heavy fog, that's some sort of glare. And so I worked at it to get rid of the glare, cancel it out. And lo and behold, that's what you get on the right side, and there's some sort of structure underneath it. What do you well, mean? What do you mean structure underneath it? Well, the uh, the part that's coming out toward you. If you look at that, you see it was you know it's it's constructed. It's it's rough, but it's uh, uh, it's not you know it's not just a natural formation. And there's actually apparently a lot of detail. In that within that area. Well, wait, wait. Where, uh, is, where is the horizontal banding coming from? Because I don't see that in your center image, which is the normal I, red, green, blue. But I do see when I blow it up, I do see mm-hmm. the most amazing, subtle, prismatic colors in that. Yes. In that that haze, like 
it's not glare. It's scattering, prismatic scattering on something that's refracting light like a prism differentially. And that's why you get all these off colors, because it's the mixing of the red, green, blue, violet that gives you these extraordinary pale pastels uh, whenever you cross two prisms on a, on, a, on a screen, that's the colors you get. So this is an incredibly wildly prismatic thing between the camera on opportunity and this wall of whatever this is, a, a, you know, background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But where is the banding yes, coming from? Uh, that's why I included the larger uh, you know the blow up of that of that one area uh, below the mall. If you look at that, yes, it's banding, but it also has shape. I mean, if you look at the cracks in the rocks and stuff, and the way they match up and don't, and the the section that comes towards you, uh, you can see that that's consistent with normal perspective. That the uh, the lines don't continue across it. Well, they are only in the yeah. upper part. They're they're missing in the lower part, almost. Well, not com- yeah, not completely. A lot of it's kind of worn down, and I it would be degraded because of what I had to do to get rid of the um, fuzz, you know. But it's uh, I'm, but I think there was some ornate detail in there, like we've seen in a few other places, and they just didn't want to show that off. But that glare is coming from something, and you're you're thinking it's in between. Yes, cameras yes. On the it, rover it, it's, and it's the between room. the rover and and the back wall. It's obvious. Look at the colors. Yeah. It's prismatic. It's yeah. it's interacting with the light. Yeah. It's some kind of glass or a equally refractive, transparent material in a very fine matrix. Like like maybe like have you seen this material called aerogel? That's so incredibly uh, frothy that you can hold it and put a blowtorch on one side. And put your hand on the other, and you don't feel a thing, because it dissipates heat so incredibly. Because it's basically air, with, with almost like meringue, uh, the consistency of meringue glass, silicon dioxide in this frothy matrix that does not conduct heat at all. It looks kind of like if you had a large mass of that between the wall, the background, and and the camera. Well, now there's actually a reason to go back to the um, – uh, sorry for the hesitation, folks. It has to do with having to fight with the phone to get there. Uh, the uh, if, To go back to number 10. Number 10. And, which is right – it's right adjacent to the same spot. You know, these they, they didn't quite line up. So it's more of the same. To, more of the same, except the, here you have a section of it that is not obscured by the glare in the on the middle right. And – but it is blown out by color. I mean, outrageous color. Wait, outrageous wait, wait, color wait. That... The one I'm looking for has really good detail at the top, blue sky, and then below yeah. a kind of a cliff with background which looks like blocks. It looks like building blocks. They're all neatly squared. They're stacked. They've got little crevices Correct. between them. It looks like you know a building. And then in front of it, there's, there's a in front of it there's another feature. But there's this pervasive, again, multicolored pastel glass-like prismatic refraction covering the whole bottom half of this frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you'll notice it doesn't have 
uh, part of it does on the uh, where it's kind of see that it has that same sort of stacked effect without the glare being removed. You know what I'm talking about? It looks like the lower one. It's just blurred, to, blurred all the heck. Uh, because I can see the I can see horizontal lines in there. Mm. I'm seeing the blocks, and I'm seeing the prism effects yeah. of something glass-like intervening. You can actually see the top. It just kind of curves to the right, bends down a mm. bit, and it looks like you're looking through something frothy made of glass interacting with the sunlight in a very prismatic way. And, of course, the scattering is reducing the contrast. But it's more than doing that. It's adding the color, the pastel colors that really come out well in this representation. So these are well, on the middle right. It looks it looks like there's ketchup spattered spattered all over it. That's some extreme red color, and that's coming from the glass. Maybe then the blue behind it at the top of the those blocks that could also be projected mm -hmm. color. Yeah, it does kind yeah, of any look like it's directional, the... like, like maybe it could be a prison. We need more images of this area to know. Anyway, this is the kind of evidence that, that uh, Ron has been quietly amassing. And it's the kind of mm -hmm. evidence that really only appeals to a specialist, someone who knows what they're looking at. Because if you show this stuff to the ordinary person, they'll go, what? You think that's what? So let me get to the evidence that I found so striking, and let me see how much time we got. Okay, we've got about. That's what I was going to lead into. Yeah. We've got about four minutes, so I don't want to waste uh, what I'm going to show in four minutes. So, kind of wind uh, up this section. Right. Okay, perfect. Because uh, now number twelve. Okay. This is fun. Moving. Uh, Ron section. Now the top. Yeah, the top half. You've seen that image before. Because for some reason, it has become the generic picture of a crater on Mars. Just notice the orangeness, notice the greenness, notice the ring shape, and notice the dunes of orange in the middle. Just well, I'm noticing that a hell of a whopping reflection from something. Oh, they always leave that part out. Picture that you'll see in innumerable amounts of clickbait, some of which where I don't even know why. You see that same picture from um, it's you know it's another reconnaissance orbiter shot, but everybody loves that one. And but they never point out that the big white thing. If you zoom in on that, you'll see a lot of prismatic refraction and reflect stuff like Richard just said uh, in there. It's a structure that is so glassy and so reflective that it just doesn't resolve no matter what you do. And uh, I don't. Well, it takes a lot of reflection to blow out a CCD camera, which has incredible mm -hmm. linearity. So whatever it is, it's completely swamping the imaging system on the MRO spacecraft. Mm -hmm. And there's structure under there, which uh, compare if I compare it to other things that we can see more clearly on other MRO images, it's the same kind of blocky architecture in this case as uh, I would posit fairly safely. Uh, as you see on that, uh, what is that architect's name? That uh, this is something that will lead into Andrew too, because he just came. Um, that uh, designed that strange structure in um, London. 
You've seen the article. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He sent that, that around the other day. I I forget the guy, but it's it it does look Gary, yeah, Gary, something like that. I don't remember. Uh, and yeah, we are running out of time. I'll tell you what. Let's let's pause here. Perfect. Okay. Because, I mean, this is really intriguing. Ron has spent literally probably a decade trying to amass from various missions evidence to support his theory, his model, that at the end of Mars habitable life, before the refugees had to leave for the only place in the solar system where they could live and survive, namely here, they tried a successive series of geological efforts to dome in craters, to preserve atmosphere, to grow plants, to grow an ecosphere, an environment, to basically survive on a dying world. And now tonight, we're going to show you some evidence which I think it's going to blow your mind. I think it's going to blow everybody's mind because it's so overwhelmingly obvious what we're looking at. That after tonight, the arguments, were there ancient domed-in cities on the planet Mars? The crystal cities of Barsoom? And the answer is yes. And when we come back, we're going to show you this extraordinary breakthrough evidence. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. (laughs) 
And welcome back, everyone. Saturday night, March 20th, spring has sprung on planet Earth. On the planet Mars, it's a different season, but the tilts are the same. So the seasonal progression is the same, except the seasons on Mars, because of the year, are roughly twice as long. So, Ron, let's return to the evidence, because to me, you know, you've spent an awful lot of time accruing bits and pieces, and the bits and pieces can kind of be argued for or against, depending upon your level of expertise. But if we go back to Radio with Pictures, if we click under the banner on the guest page on my items and go down to number six... This is very interesting. This is a video put together by one of the uh, obsessive-compulsive Percy watchers uh, on Reddit. NASA did not put this together, uh, but this Reddit viewer did. And I need to give a little context here. When the spacecraft was entering the atmosphere at super super hypersonic speeds, actually, 12,000, 13,000 miles per hour, it had to slow down, and of course, it had a heat shield to do that. At a certain altitude, somewhere around 15, 13 miles, something like that, um, it separated the, from, from the aeroshell. It separated a parachute, a supersonic parachute, and it slowed down very, very quickly. And then from roughly 10 miles down to a mile or two, it drifted on the parachutes. And then it disconnected something called a sky crane, which is kind of a a rocket backpack, uh, and it lowered the rover on cables, uh, balancing it against the forces of pendulum motion, gravity, winds, touchdown, and then the pyrotechnic uh, devices in the rover fire and cut the cables, and the sky crane flies off in another direction and then crashes Uh, safely like a mile or two away as it's falling gently on the parachutes and on the sky crane itself there were two separate cameras looking down that were taking extraordinary video real-time video 30 frames per second video of the descent one was what I call the GoPro camera although it's not made by GoPro, it's made by another uh, firm, uh, which they kind of modified off the shelf, put in a few more materials so it could survive the extremes of temperature and vibration. And that was the color camera looking down that gave us those amazing views two days after landing. Camera that we hadn't seen product from until relatively recently was a black and white high-resolution camera mounted on the side of the rover, also looking down. But its images were going to a special dedicated computer in Perseverance itself. And in that computer, at extremely high speeds, they were comparing preloaded imaging maps of the landing site with the real-time imagery coming in at 30 frames per second from this exterior downward-looking black-and-white camera, which had a 90-degree field-of-view lens. So literally, uh, if it looks at the horizon, it can see the horizon 
at one end of the picture and the nadir or the point below the spacecraft at the other end, 90 degrees. So this, um, this uh, individual that read it put these frames together, and if you click on number six, uh, turn the sound down because for some reason he chose Psycho from Bernard Herrmann as his soundtrack. And when I showed this to Andrew earlier in the week, he went, ah, I mean, it, it kind of fits in a weird way, but you can turn the sound down. Just watch, watch the video, watch what happens. Okay. And I'm going to do this in real time and I will click on it. And you see the heat shield immediately drop away. You then see some jerky frames because he didn't take every frame and you see that shading around, you saw the horizon briefly, you see the ground coming up, you see something very bizarre on the right-hand side of the picture, and I'll get to that in a moment. And then you get uh, more close-ups as the spacecraft is going lower, the 90-degree camera angle gives you a good view of the delta to the north, more of that brightness on the right-hand side, the uh, script is obviously now landing, you see the turbulent sands of the sky cranes rockets and then it stops and you can play it again and again and again and it will show you um you know this you, you see more every time you play it so i would recommend that you play it uh more than once now let's go to number seven number seven in my section is one of the frames from this it's called the lander vision system it was not designed to be a public accessible data, except long after landing. And what you'll see there is this round thing in the middle of the frame. That's the heat shield falling away. And then you'll see in the upper right, the curvature of Mars, the atmosphere, and then above it, dark space. And then you'll see the landscape itself. And in the kind of middle, just kind of to the left of center, there's this weird brightness which I have never seen on any other photographs of Mars. So now we go back to the site and hopefully everybody's not looking so I can, there we are. Okay. And this will give us, oh, maybe I'm being frozen out of my own website because everybody's looking. Okay. Were okay. you trying to go to number eight, Richard? Hang on, hang on, hang on. I'll, I'll get there. Oh, okay. Don't worry. It just takes a while for me to, you know, do this. I probably shouldn't click on them like I did. That was the dumb thing I did. I clicked on it. So everybody's hammering the site, which is good news. It takes just a moment for it to load here. Uh, okay, now it says page is not working. Oh, that's that's terrible. Don't do that. Okay, let's do this. Uh, I love technology. When it works, it works wonderfully. When it doesn't work, you're up. A creek. Okay. So I'm clicking on the banner again. That will take me to tonight's guest page. I just have to be patient. There we are. There we are. Okay. So after number six, you want to click on seven and then you want to click on number eight. <clears throat> this is a frame from the color, the GoPro camera, which is, remember, looking down as well as the black and white lander system camera. On the right-hand side of the frame, the little tiny blue thing, that's the heat shield falling away. And this is, I've rotated this around so the orientation is the same 
as the Lander Vision camera from from number seven. And there's that bright glare again on the surface of Mars. And then if you go to well, that's nine, extraordinary. Well, it's 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 not. I've never seen it before. It cracks mm-hmm. geometrically, and we're gonna when Andrew joins us, he looked at this video like a million times and couldn't believe what he was seeing because as the spacecraft is drifting on the parachute and it's falling closer to the surface, this brilliant halo, which is obviously the reflection of the sun back in, into the camera, is tracking with the geometry of the fall on the parachute of the Perseverance rover. And as it gets closer, now we're back to number nine. That's more of the Lander Vision camera system. Number 10, more of it getting closer. You can see more detail. That brilliant halo is following the geometry of the descent like it's walking its way across the landscape irrespective of the topography, irrespective of materials, irrespective of craters. There's something so bright kicking back light from this surface of Mars, from the the lake bed, we've been told, of Yezero Crater, that literally it is backscattering an overwhelming glare because the sun, if you look at the shadows, the sun is behind you. The sun is behind the camera. The sun is late afternoon on Mars. Um, I think it's 15-something local Mars time, which is... um, you know, 13, it's uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, so, or 3.30. Anyway, um, now number 11, click on number 11. This is where things get really intriguing, because number 11 is a side-by-side comparison of one of the early Lander Vision camera uh, images. I've cropped off the bottom. <clears throat> I've left that brilliant glare in the lower left-hand corner, and I've simply changed the contrast between the left-hand representation of the same frame and the right-hand presentation of the same frame. And that line of dark stuff on the right, kind of curving around to the middle, that's the rim of Yuzero Crater, this 30-mile-wide crater in a 90-degree lens. So it's a super wide-angle lens. And what you're seeing in this image, particularly the version on the right, is that the stuff in the northeast of the crater, because you're looking east, okay? In this shot, you're looking directly east. In the northeast, there appears to be all kinds of bright stuff, which if you magnify this, which we're going to do momentarily, has a geometric lattice-like form, as does the banded area above the curving dark limb of Mars, up above all the way to the top of the frame. And if you back out of this, okay, let's hope this works, and then you go to number 12, click on number 12. This is what the Perseverance Lander Vision Camera captured in maximum detail, in maximum resolution. This is nothing less than the layer, the stratified layers of an incredibly geometric lattice-like dome. Don't think of an inverted salad bowl. Think of something with layers that is very complex to distribute loads and mass and weight and 
potential forces from like gravity and wind. Remember, Mars has an atmosphere. This image should not exist. Now, another thing I need to tell you is that these are not just a couple of still frames. Keeping in mind that these cameras were taking television rate video all the way down, both independent camera systems recording the same phenomenon, one in color, one in black and white. But in video, we have thousands of frames of this phenomenon from each camera. Talk about independent confirmation because you can play all kinds of interesting games in computers now. You can stack images, which suppresses noise and amplifies signal as to the square root of the number of frames that you stack. Amateur astronomers photographing detail on the moon now routinely use framing cameras. They used to be called uh, um, uh, webcams. And they take thousands of frames, winnow out those where the atmosphere is blurring the detail. And by only putting those frames together that show the moment when the Earth's atmosphere is still, they're able to develop extraordinary resolution of features on the moon down to, you know, less than a thousand feet with a, with a, with a telescope that's no bigger than 14 inches. You know, forget Keck, forget Palomar. Forget the, the Geminis with an amateur in the backyard with the right computer algorithm now, the right imaging program, and the right frame stacking. You can outdo any professional telescope looking at the moon at any time in history up until about five years ago when the professionals started doing exactly the same thing. And, of course, a bigger telescope gives you better resolution so ultimately they won the race, but amateurs are definitely in the game. Well, the same technique can be applied to all these thousands of frames from two separate cameras that were looking at the glass dome still partially extant over Yazero and the fact that all of this geometry on the surface was built as part of a 30 mile wide refuge a redoubt for the last surviving Martians struggling against the Lowellian dying planet all around them. Now, let us go back to frame, well, number 11 is good, okay? Because in the bottom left, you see that brilliant reflection on the surface, which again, is not a bounce from the sun above you to the to, to you know in front of the camera it's a retro reflection from the sun behind the camera it's an incredible backscatter actually it's a back refraction the material whatever it is is acting like a trillion little lenses and refracting through internal uh, ray tracing the light from the sun behind you back at you at the camera as it's falling on the parachute and if this is all true then that surface here's the punchline has to be different than almost any other place we've looked at on mars in terms of mega images whole planet images the, the, the curvature of the horizon the atmosphere and all that in other words 
the surf of Yezero has to contain an incredibly high percentage of refractive prismatic glass. Let me repeat that. The surface of Yezero has to contain a high percentage of glass in shards, in fragments, in, in, in ground up, you know, bergy bits of glass material that's acting as a combined multifaceted lens to refract sunlight from behind you directly back at you, like one of those old Kodak beaded glass screens that my grandfather bought when they first came out because they gave you a much punchier image as opposed to a Lambert, you know, painted surface or even worse, a bed sheet, which in a break, you know, in a pinch can be used as a, as a movie screen. Well, these beaded screens acted exactly the same way that the surface of Mars is acting, but only in Yezero of all the places on Mars that I've been looking for decades. So number 13. Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead, Ron. Okay, just well, point of order that uh, that image of, of the floor of Endeavor Crater shows the same effect. I don't think it's just this one crater. It's just only certain ones where it ends up being uh, overwhelming the regolith, if you will. There's nothing nearby to dust it over, so it just stays there. Um, and that's, I think, what happened at Jezero uh, um, and Endeavor Crater. It's probably why they were drawn there. I couldn't figure out, looking at the opportunity pictures, why the sand was blue in those places. <laughs> that's what got me started on that. Uh, there's a couple of the MRO shots where if you look carefully, no, there's no weird filters involved or anything, but it's still bloody blue everywhere. And you go, huh. So I, it, I finally, it had to be glad. Well, I actually, of that sun glint on that color photo taken by the, again, it's not a GoPro, but I'll call it GoPro. You know, the EDL yeah. camera that gave us the stunning views looking down, coming down. I actually mm -hmm. measured the color ratios of the landscape away from the sun glint and then the mm -hmm. ratios in the sun glint and the blue light coming from the sun glint is a factor of three stronger than in the red deserts to left or right of the sun glint. So something is kicking light back from the surface that is bluer than the landscape which could be sunlight, because sunlight is bluer than the reddish surface of Mars. In other words, all these independent lines of evidence are saying there's an optically active material in the sands of Yezero, which is not present in most other locations on Mars, except for the exceptions that Ron has mentioned. And it appears to be smashed, fragmented glass. Where did the glass come from? It came from the shattering of the dome that isn't there anymore that fell to the ground under gravity and is now lying in the soil and should be visible. This is a key test. Remember, every model has to have a scientific test so you can go on to the next step of the model. So my thinking was, okay, if there's this much glass in the surface on the best surface color images we have so far, which are from the mass cam Z, the zoom cameras on the mass, 
and from a camera on the arm called the Sherlock Watson camera. Sherlock, Watson, Watson, Sherlock, you get the drift of what they're trying to do. Um, and so I've got two images, 13 and 14, which I, if you zoom in, you can actually see on 13 and even better on 14, the prismatic effects of the glass shards in the surface materials under the rover. And number 14 is really good because it was taken by the Watson camera deep in the shadow under the rover with a sliver of sunlight coming in in, in the instrumentation or the bogey wheel system suspension up above. So you have basically a ray of sunlight coming in at about a 90 degree angle in two places in a dark surround. The landscape under the rover, of course, is shielded from direct sunlight, so it's relatively dark. You've got this brilliant shaft of sunlight, and when you look at that surface, just click on it and then click on it again, you can see incredible evidence of prismatic rainbows from individual objects, from an array of objects, there's nothing on the natural Martian surface which should show us anything like this except for lots and lots of shattered glass. Ron, I believe your model at Yazero is resoundingly confirmed. Why, thank you, thank you, thank you. I donate this trophy to uh, <laughs> the first, first person I see over there. Uh, you, you, the guy with the with the broom here. Uh, the um, yeah, no, I, I think so. And you, well, I like the fact that you've caught, you've collected so much evidence that's concentrated this this way because when people start to look at it. And this, by the way, is the reason that I usually rush through my images, knowing full well that half the computer in time to see them anyway. Uh, you're to look at them at your at your pleasure and um, absorb the totality of all of it, so it all kind of runs together. I mean, I thought of something when Richard was talking about his number twelve. The um, that is very reminiscent of something that would show up occasionally in the Mars Global Surveyor images. They never explained it. You just said, okay, that one's a throwaway. You know, but the, I wonder if they were catching a, they were just catching that, happening, happening to catch a fragment of a dome in focus. And um, it was catching the light, so it just, <clears throat> you, didn't, you couldn't see anything else. So wait, wait, what, but, what, uh, what, what number in your section are we talking about? I do not have an example of that. Ah, you okay. just made me think of this. I'll have to look for them. But Mars Global Surveyor, uh, the... Um, first public view that we got right i'm one of those that thinks the mars observer its exact twin which was a year or so ahead of it uh which got all the way to mars and then said i'm tired i'm not going to work anymore and so i think they just took it dark and so they could get an advanced look at everything uh it certainly seems that way but that same kind of stuff which you just assume is noise shows up and it has structure I know I sound like one of those people listening in the headphones to SETI signals, but it, you know, you can see structure in there, and it's um, the, now it fits together. Occasionally, they were catching pictures of domes too, so don't. Uh, that's why I included in mind that section with the Mariner Four picture. Don't ever think they didn't know what was down there uh, before mm. they told us. 
I'm not so sure about 65 Mariner 4. But I think all the subsequent missions, they they had maps. They, I mean, the targeting of where they've landed. I mean, do you think it's an accident that this incredibly sophisticated rover, which is loaded with every kind of instrument you'd use for archaeology, including ground-penetrating radar, they did not know where they were landing? Of course they did. Because if you take MRO shots at the right time of day, not looking straight down like at noon, if you take it in, Mm -hmm. you know, like an oblique at an angle with the sun in the right place, you're going to get in the MRO imagery this stunning backscatter, not only from the dome, the surviving dome, but also from the surface. And you're going to see that it slides along geometrically as the orbit changes. And that can only be accounted for by backscatter from an incredibly refractive interactive material, namely glass. Now, we're coming up to the top of the hour. We're going to be joined by Andrew Curry, who's done some very interesting uh, sketches to kind of show people what we're talking about. And then I have a surprise that I'm waiting to play in the next hour, which is another piece of correlative evidence. I mean, it's really interesting the way this seems to be coming together. Well, there are a lot of theories. Okay, I have a sound leak from somewhere. There we are. Uh, The technology. You're on the other side of midnight. We're talking about ancient habitation of Mars, the kind of final gasp of whoever was left on the planet after the catastrophe, as the Martian environment kept getting worse and worse and worse, and the atmosphere disappeared and disappeared, and the cold set in, the biosphere was totally gone, and then you had these oases of artificial life and light, and heat, and biology, and humans. Yes, I said humans, because in this model, the ancient great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmothers of all of us finally had to come to the only habitable place in the solar system, namely here. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. 
support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. It's now Sunday officially here in the Land of Enchantment, the 21st. Um, one more day into spring. We've been joined by uh, our resident artist, expert in many, many different fields, movies, television, storyboards. And I always ask, you know, Andrew to do the impossible. I show him a picture and I say, quick, quick, I need a sketch. And he never, ever has failed to come through. So tonight, Andrew, welcome to the other side of midnight. Hi, thank you, Richard. And I want you to describe your reaction to this whole kind of unfolding data set. Because over the week, you know, when I first realized what those damn glints were, I feverishly shared image after image and video after video and even some other surprising stuff. And so you're going to get kind of a first cut reaction. Because initially, I think, Andrew, you were a bit hesitant. And then as you got into it, it was like, oh, my God. Well, first of all, folks, dealing with Richard is like dealing with the people in my industry. They ask – Richard's like a producer or a director, like, can you do this right now in the next 10 minutes? I got a meeting with the production crew or with the clients. So <laughs> that's one part of this. But we got it done. And – Richard, the big thing that stood out for me was the glare that you were discussing in the last segment of the show that was moving across the land, the Martian landscape. The first time I saw that, I, I did kind of notice it, you know, in a peripheral kind of way, like I was going, what was that, you know, but I wasn't really paying attention. And then when you drew attention to it, I went, oh, I do remember that. And I remember in my mind, it was, it was a little note. It was like, you know, one little sticky note, you know, I got to remember that one, but eh, I don't know, maybe it was just a lens thing or something. But when you said, oh no, the sun is behind Perseverance, <laughs> I went, what? And it's moving and it's live. It's not someone's you know, video that they put to show us what it's going to look like when the Perseverance lander starts to come down from the sky, or sky train, from the sky crane. And it's not, you know, something that's been sanitized. It's just like, here, have a look at the video. And, and yeah, I was stunned. And then the more you showed me and the closer we got to refining the images, Richard, there's structure down there in, in, you know, I even, I think I said to you earlier today, I said when I was sort of trying to attempt to interpret what I believe I'm seeing in the crater on these edges, you know, around the rim, it's literally like just blocks and, and arches of like, like, like almost invisible, well, it's glass. You see right through it. But the really interesting thing is, is that not only is there sort of structure, and you can see the structure mangled in some places, like these long runners that just look really mangled. You have to look really close and spend time with it. But there's beads 
There's these beads that just run. Yes, it's it's like it, again. I think I said this before, but it's like in the fall. I mean, we're in spring now, but in the fall, when you get those beautiful dew 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 spots, you know, those dew dew drips that just run along a wire or something. It, that's what it looks like, and it's just line after line after line, and they're going horizontally and they're going vertically, but they're also there's curvature lines. I can see them. There are bent and broken. And I'm thinking, is that something in the film? And and then you said, well, no, it can't be. It, it brought out. And no, yeah, it's live I, video, and it's thousands yeah. of frames. Like if you if you see when yeah. I when I saw the glint initially on the on I'll call it the GoPro color camera, I thought, oh darn, you know, they went and bought a commercial camera. That's not the company, by the way. I don't want to. You know, if I remembered, I wouldn't mention the company. So um, I thought uh, there, there was a deep, you know, their their effort to modify like off the shelf to save money so they could put all these cameras on quite worked. They got a light leak, et cetera, et cetera. We had a problem like that back during Mariner 4. Speaking of Mariner 4 and 65, the first image looked like a light leak after the spacecraft got all the way to Mars there in the, in the July of 65. So I thought, ah, darn, you know, it was a great try, but there's the, the image is marred, the video is marred by a light leak. Then fast forward the film, unintended, and I see this Reddit guy put together his version of the Lander vision system camera footage, totally separate camera, black and white, much higher resolution, 90 degree lens, and I'm seeing the same damn thing tracking across the surface and it's like ah dumkoff it's a sun glint but it's not a glint because Mm -hmm. a glint implies like you're you're seeing a a reflection from a windshield Mm -hmm. this is like if the sun was behind you and the windshield was somehow bouncing light directly back at you even though the surface is tilted away in some of these shots in the 90 degree angle shot by like 70 80 degrees so whatever is doing this intense backscatter, which literally is blowing out the CCD cameras, it's exceeding the latitude of a CCD camera. It's got to be one hell of a refraction slash backscatter internal reflection function going on. And nothing natural on Mars can do this. Yeah, so and that- take us go, – go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, well, that glare, like we discussed, it's running. <laughs> it's running with the, you know, as the ship comes down, it's 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 paralleling along the surface the way it should. You know, the way if something was reflecting. Have you ever looked that. out the window of an airliner? Of course you have. <laughs> and you're flying yep. above, you know, like thin clouds, and the sun is like at noon, so you're looking basically at high noon. And if you look in the right direction and the clouds are right, you'll see this brilliant glow moving with you over the landscape, with the clouds, with the velocity of the aircraft. And in the best examples, it will have multicolored rings around it. It's called the glory. And the rings are caused by the multiple internal prismatic refractions in the droplets, the spherical droplets of water in the clouds, and it beams the sunlight literally back at the ray trace of where it's coming from, 
and you're in between, kind of like you're eclipsing the surface. And then right. if you're close enough, you can actually see the silhouette, the dark shadow of the airplane. And this mm-hmm. is tracking with this glow around the dark shadow, which is the moving backscatter of the clouds above the surface. This is exactly what we're seeing in three dimensions as Percy gently landed and Jezero and made history in all different ways. And NASA's not saying a word about any of this. They're just putting out the data so we can be the fall guys. And then they will come and go, oh, my God, look at that. Yeah, exactly. Now, listen, Richard, I was letting Kenthea know, of course, I'm always dropping something on her at last minute, that one of the first things you asked me to do, and that I should explain my reference at the beginning of the pop when I came in, is that you kind of asked me to do, well, you sort of said, can you do like a storyboard of the lander coming in? And I actually did it. Um, I don't know how well I did it, but I did it. So if Kenthea is listening, um, I did send it to you, Kenthea. If you could post that at some point. Oh, that, but, would be number, um, that would be number three. We have two items up there, sketches of, of the dome, the Yezero dome, and then domes in general. And so that would be what, number three? No, it's it's not up yet. I Oh, my number three is a, is just came out, I think, a day ago, uh, NASA's Perseverance. It, it caught a dust devil, Richard. I just thought that was a very interesting little article because it just – I oh, mean, yeah, I think yeah. – uh, yeah, I, I can yeah, see I, it there, number three. Yeah. It's just more data. I mean, look look at the sky too. Look at the color of the sky. It's blue. We're looking at my number three, everybody. If if you go to my items, um, but the dust devil is just another one of these features that show us that wow, Mars is really kind of Earth-like. You know, like I mean, we kind of. I, I mean, I think yeah. there was in the article they talk about a dust devil uh, that was caught by the MRO in 2019, and they can get up to five miles tall. So it's a kind of a standard thing. But it's just very interesting that there is weather and things going on on that planet as we've you know, discussed and as we saw it coming down through the clouds. Anyways, um, no, the, the little um, – uh, actually, Cynthia has it now, and she's going to post it. So what you asked me to do, Richard, is that we, what we did – do you want me to go to my image items? And yes, maybe, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so we'll go to my number one. Cue the pictures. Um, cue the pictures. <laughs> I'm wearing my director's hat now. Yeah. <laughs> no, you you fit well in our industry. <laughs> I used Anyways. to be in your industry, remember? Yeah. So. Oh, I know. Hmm. Well, um, so my number one is uh, what did I call it? it it's it, called Yezero Shattered Domes. Yeah, and so what, Richard? And I believe Richard, you have the original image in your items. Do you have your side by side? I I I was mm. frantic. Well, I have I have the side by side of the normal view, and then the kind of enhanced where I darken things so you can yeah. see the dome structure. Uh, but what I like to do is make a composite with your sketch and the actual f- f- photography side yeah. by side, which we will do that after the show, and we'll yeah. post it in my items at some number. It may be an A or a B because it probably needs to be grouped up together with the images of the dome. But you did a hell of a job. Oh, Good. thank you. Well, can you describe where this is in the crater, please? Well, it's the upper half. You're looking east. It's a match to my image, which is – let me go back and actually uh, tell people where the image is. Okay. Scrolling, scrolling. There we are. It's um, image number seven. 
all right? Mm-hmm. Or my composite, which is number 11. Probably number 11 is a better match, which is, you know, two frames, same one, different contrast level. Yeah. So it's a match for 11, except yours is a sketch of what 11 shows. So Yeah. And this is so... Yeah, so this is the view of of, of the Perseverance um, aircraft. Or aircraft. Um, boy, am I getting ahead with Elon Musk? No, um, yes, the yes. spacecraft <laughs> spacecraft coming in, and you know, it's sort of waving about and you know, bobbing about as it as it's coming through to start to make its approach into the crater, and it catches, as you say, the you know, and it's all wobbly. Now, you, what you've done is you straightened it up to give us like a, you know, yeah, well, well nice... gravity down because it turns yeah. out that remember the Harvard experiments, people see geometry yeah. if the gravity is vertical down, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, in the background, you can see this incredible backscattering of light, and you definitely see these this crisscrossing. Um, geometry, which is something we we very much have seen on the moon. To Richard, I've seen these textures exactly. Before. You've caught it's them. It's not an atmosphere. It's something no. mechanical. It's something solid. Something physical that's yeah. transparent, but not. Remember, this is glass. Yes, it's got yeah, lots I... and lots and lots of of little scattering centers, so that instead of being clear, it's milky. And that's why we're yeah. seeing it and why we're seeing the geometry in it. Yeah. It, and it, it's been eroded by Martian dust storms for, I think, 400 centuries at a minimum. Could be older, but I think it, this could be the last place they lived before they left for here. That's my thinking now. Yeah, are you going to share with the audience why part of why you think that? Yes. Okay. Well, we have 45 minutes. I don't want to okay. give away all the good stuff, but, you know, till we get to hey, the end. I'm, I'm jumping up the script. <laughs> no, so anyways, what I've done is I've done two two kind of drawings. One where I tried to pick up on the subtlety, especially on the left-hand curvature side of the of this particular view of Jezero Crater. And to me, it looks like almost this crisscross, crisscrossing, almost hatching, like like almost like a house shape. Mm-hmm. Now, when I say when I say house, folks, it's, I don't mean literally it's a house, but it kind of has that shape because it it, it it's teepee-ish, like it's 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 tentish. Now this is huge. This just goes up. What do we figure, Richard? About almost six miles. Well, up. what's interesting is that if if you if you go back to my number eleven, all right. Yeah. And we really need to do the side by side. Yeah, I so know. I scroll back up to number eleven in Richard's sections. You'll see that this bright curve appears to be the top of the dome. You're like kind of level with it. This photograph, this image, this frame was taken about six miles up, right. uh, and I got that directly from the uh, JPL narration. I matched the images to the so we know exactly where we are. Right. On a 30-mile-wide dome, and you can see the far side of the dome, both in the photograph and in Andrew's sketch or sketches, that a six-mile-high dome is, is one-fifth, five-sixths or 30, okay? So it's one-fifth yeah. the diameter, given even our current 3D printing technology, add a dose of space manufacturing, because if you manufacture glass in space, it's 20 times stronger than steel. We know this from NASA experiments and a paper from Lawrence Livermore Laboratory many years ago, which means if you had a space-faring culture, 
and you could take your glass from space or bring it up into orbit, manufacture panels, and then bring it back down, you would have a material, transparent, built-in panels put together with robots, lots and lots of robots, that would be 20 times stronger than steel. It would be on the, on the you know, order of magnitude of, of Kevlar and, and buckyballs and nanotubes and graphene. In other words, it would be a super material, easily make domes 30 miles wide and six miles high out of this material. Yeah, exactly. And towards, again, if people are listening to this and not seeing the images, I, we really insist, like Ron said, you know, go and have a look at these images. They're in the archives. We're going to add more to it. We're going to put side by sides and look closely. Go in, zoom in, whatever your program is, because you will find details. And you, it's not just a cross hatching. You know, that's what we call it in art. It, it almost has a cross hatch effect. But when you Andrew, go. In, Andrew? Yes, sir. Andrew, sorry to jump in here. No, don't call me, sir. Uh, <laughs> no, the uh, of your uh, shattered domes there. It, um, yeah, I haven't decided on my gender of the week. No, that's not why. Uh, the uh, it looks like it reminds me of the Pompidou Center. For those who are sitting in front have of the, no idea what you're talking about. The Pompidou Center, folks, is a glass pyramid and such. Uh, of a very ornate structure that sits in front of the Louvre. Oh, the, oh, the, the, yeah. the glass pyramid. One of my friends Good took vision. photographs of himself under the pyramid in the Louvre, and there's an inverted pyramid underground to mirror the one sitting in the plaza on top. Oh, very interesting. You're right. You're right. And well, I, I think, yeah, it reminds me of that, I, and I, I'm not surprised. Yeah, these are yeah. gorgeous, Andrew, by the way. Oh, Thank you. Well, I did too. I did one that's more of a line drawing to sort of show the pattern of what we're seeing. And Ron, you're exactly right. It does look like that. Well, what I also did is if everybody refreshes their um, device or the, the site or whatever, and you come out of that image and scroll down to my number four. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, look at this. So oh, this, this is, is cool. Yeah, this is what – so this is – this is what I do. This is a, this is basically a storyboard. So, so what I did is, is if people can look at it again, if you don't get to look at it now, look at it after the show. This is what Richard asked me to do. He said, Hey, Andrew can do a storyboard. <laughs> so I did. Uh, and well, Andrew's, you know, he has a little sign on his desk as storyboards are my life. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, Pictures are, that's for sure. But anyway, so I, I did this sort oh, of close up of this. Oh my yeah, okay. God! Oh, you you hit it out of the solar system. Well, you describe it, Richard. I, no, go, no, go. no! It's your sketch. Go, go. No, no, you're you're the director. I I'm just the mm. guy that supports the um, you know, the, the push okay. What he's go. got, he's got the first frame at the top. It's you know, looking up. You're looking at Percy in the aeroshell on the parachute, and that's at about six miles. Then you're looking from the from the from the spacecraft from the rover sideways, and you're seeing it you know, descending, and there's this sea of glass in the northeast quadrant. Now, why the northeast quadrant? Because the prevailing winds at Sirtis Major, which is where this is near the tip of, in the northern hemisphere, are from the southwest. So the dome is being eroded by the sandstorms, 
but it's protecting itself because it literally is sticking up to the top of the sensible atmosphere. So nothing can attack it from the top. It has to attack it from the side, which means the rest of it, and there's a huge amount of mass in the form of glass because it isn't like an inverted salad bowl. It's much more complex, and each grain has to attack and destroy more mass. So the dome is protecting itself in the northeast position from the winds blowing the sand at 300 miles an hour coming from the southwest. And it's just so the way you've depicted little Percy falling lower and lower and lower emits this amazing panorama of an ancient redoubt on Mars that may have held the last humans before they came to Earth. Now, let me tell you why I think that's true. If you look at the wide angle, let's go back up to my section. You have to go back to the main page. Then you have to scroll up uh, to my section. You can actually also click on fast links to Richard. But finding a close by fast link sometimes is not easy. So go to number 11 and go to the right hand uh, frame of number 11. Remember, both frames are the same. The right-hand one is just more contrast-enhanced, so you see the glass against the background. Over on the right, about mid-frame, just inside the crater rim, which is that dark shadow curving around to the middle in the far eastern distance, three pyramids, and their alignment is identical to the three pyramids at Giza which of course is depicting the belt of Orion. So my simple model says, this is their embodiment on Mars of the incredible Orion connection for this facet of the human family. When Neil Armstrong landed on the moon and he said that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, no missing A. The man is everybody out there Mankind is us here on Earth, and he knew exactly what he was saying because he knew all this stuff. That's why he became a recluse when he came back from the moon, because he couldn't tell a lie, and he couldn't tell the truth, so he couldn't tell anything, and except when he went to the 25th anniversary in Bill Clinton's uh, White House and stood there and talked about there is truth to be revealed under truth's protective layers. Never quite understood what that could mean except in this context that NASA knows so much more than it's been telling us. So anyway, those pyramids, and you can see much better versions of them, and we'll pop up a map showing where they are. They appear to be a one-on knockoff, except they're older. They're the progenitors of the three main pyramids at Giza, um, Khufu, not Kia, uh, um, Kephren, and Mycerinus, which are misnamed after pharaohs that didn't have anything to do with them because they were there when the Egyptians got there. So this is why I think this may have been the departure point, the last vestige of human civilization on Mars before our great, 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 great grandmothers had to come here. And Richard? Yes. Oh, both of us. You just... (laughs) All this talk about all this talk about this stuff. I have an agricultural thought. There was a feature that the early people, like uh, the early astronomers, like Shapirelli saw, that was called uh, 
the arrowhead and it was in that general area and it was drawn on all the early maps and then when they went looking for it in Lowell's time nobody could find it anymore and I wonder if that was in fact an agricultural area in some sense and that there were a number of these yet to be found in that same general area and that's why it was so green compared to everywhere else well see that's the other part we're seeing a, an amazing amount of greenish blue Green. in this landscape and we've been wondering where it came from well i think it's the glass from the dome shattered lying on the surface because the wind can't blow away the glass it falls when it's eroded away it falls down and supports fall there's big chunks there's tiny stuff Again, look at those two surface images from the mass cam and from the Watson camera. I mean, is there any other way to explain prismatic, brilliant, glowing specks in the sand that should not be there other than glass refracting prismatic sunlight? Well, I can't think of another reason <laughs> unless somebody the was feeling paint. <laughs> the glass is definitely there, but… Uh, there could also be microbes. That's a Algae, whole other – yeah, but microbes do not spectrally scatter or refract sunlight. No, but they might they might uh, draw benefits from it. That's a separate See, level have, question. Okay. Well, let me put on my tinfoil hat and give you one of the wilder speculations that I have because it's just – it's an accumulative suspicion that I have that – uh, part of their technology was um, based on an understanding of crystals and crystalline structure that goes way beyond ours. Uh, because one thing they seem to have been able to manufacture, although they're very difficult to depict, is a stationary hologram. In other words, something that is a static object that does not have to be re-energized or fed a signal uh, that refracts the light naturally into a hologram shape or a hologram of and I think they got pretty good at this. And I think that some of those particles of glass that we see are because of that strange crystalline structure. You might think they almost have a delay factor built into their structure. So they actually reflect back more than hits them. Hmm. You know, they, they pulse at some, at some high rate. And that's why they're actually brighter than a simple mirror would be. See, one of the cool things I'm anticipating when they finally in another 30 days or so launch Ingenuity the helicopter. Remember, they're being very constrained in what they're showing us in the way of images. They're only showing us afternoon images with sunlight either above or beyond uh, Temple Butte. When they launch the helicopter and we get video from the helicopter, they're going to give us 360s. We should see from the helicopter amazing sun glint close up, which will track with the motion of the helicopter, okay. and it's going to blow their effing minds. Okay. Hey, hey. <laughs> Hold it there. You're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning, Andrew Curry, Ron Gerbron. We're discussing this incredible confirmation of Ron's long-standing, long-suffering, long-gathering evidence, agricultural dome model for the last vestiges of civilization on Mars before they had to finally come here. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return and we shall return with 
a surprise. Additional evidence has come in. Don't touch anything. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. Saturday night, Sunday morning, technically Sunday morning here in the Land of Enchantment, second day of spring. Everybody can go outside. Don't forget your masks. Some people are going to hate me when I say that. Anyway, uh, we're talking about ancient civilizations on Mars, and I'm going to now present some additional evidence, which comes from a surprising source which has, frankly, ever since uh, NASA published it, has been baffling the folks at NASA and JPL. And I'm referring specifically, if I can call up the right thing here, to this. And hopefully this will play properly and we do this. Okay. This is the rover, remember? This is the rover moving. And what the heck is that screeching? Now, uh, Keith, I want to bring you in here because I sent this to him this afternoon and I said, okay, you're an audio guy. You've used and repaired and, you know, uh, bootstrapped and put together with bailing wire and duct tape more amplifiers than I will ever see. What do you think this is? Keith, you want to come in and give us your ideas? Mr. Morgan. Mr. Morgan. Okay. See, Andrew, I don't want to be a director because when you call something specifically, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I need to do this. Yeah, there there you are. There you are. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. 
right. Uh, I've been listening to this over and over again. And based on what I'm hearing and, and the sound projections from the wheels, the sound projections of the stones bouncing around in the wheels, and the sounds that are coming from when this when the rover ro- moves forward, it either sounds like it's suspension with rubber rubbing somewhere or plastic rubbing, um, and it sounds it sounds like something rubbing to me. Um, I know NASA says there shouldn't be anything on there should be making any noises like that, but to me that's what it sounds like, and based on the the sounds that are coming from it, it sounds like it's really close. And if there was vibrations that's picking up from the from the uh, rover itself through any kind of mounting or something like that, it shouldn't be that case. That shouldn't be the case because they should have put some kind of um, shock absorber rubber mounting of the microphone to keep it insulated from picking up uh, noises reverberating through the chassis of the of the rover. So, um, but it sounds to me like it's some kind of plastic or or rubber. Okay. Now, what I asked him also to do was to give us a waveform so we can kind of see what the spectrum is. And it turns out that the folks over at Reddit, they've of course already looked at this six ways from Sunday and they've actually had one person who admits to being one of the lead uh, rover engineers participating in the discussion and he says that they have checked everything they cannot find any problem with actuators with sticky plastic with rubber with lack of sealant remember they can they can energize each one of the wheels on the rover separately so they can literally pin down if it's any one wheel with a problem it's it's not it's all of them together giving us this okay so let me hit you with what i think it is i think it's literally the sound of perseverance driving on glass trillions of shards of broken pieces of the dome redolent in this regolith under under underfoot because you can see it in the pictures and it has to me the sound of when you scrape crushed glass across a metallic surface and one of these guys rover guys was asked by the other reddit members whether they plan to do a test in the mars yard with uh, the little pet rover they have which is a duplicate of perseverance and he said honestly that this rover is so taxed out in terms of experiments that they may or may not have time to do this and they wouldn't be able to do it now for many many months which of course is a convenient excuse not to have to compare the sounds of the rover driving in the mars yard with the mars rover driving on mars because i guarantee you they will sound like nothing because they haven't mixed the soil in the Mars yard of JPL with a few tons of shattered, crushed glass. But here is the piece de resistance, okay? Because in addition to the acknowledged JPL guy, one of the uh, rover uh, engineers, there is an anonymous guy 
who contributed a, a rather interesting observation. His name is Bedwell78, obviously a pseudonym. And he says, and I'm, I'm convinced this is a guy from JPL, and you're going to hear why. He said, it sounds like I imagine rolling metal wheels over superfine, sharp substrate in low atmosphere might it's like the picks of the surface surprising but familiar in a way and not entirely alien i mean talk about a leak guys what do you think uh i've heard that sound when i've been the squeaking noise uh, when I have walked across very coarse sand that was very, very dry with uh, boots on, you know, like rubber boots. And especially I've heard it on pavement where there's been a car accident or something like that. And if you walk across the shattered, you know, because that's tempered glass that comes out of car windows and it keeps destroying itself until the it gets down to small, fairly uh, rounded particles, but they're still just as hard. And when they rub together, they squeak. Well, the difference between shattered glass and sand is that sand is is roundish because it abrades. It blows, it rolls, it's moved by the winds. We know sand dunes are moving on Mars, which gets to the whole That's idea. what you need for the squeak. Okay, That's but, but the, squeak. the glass will not erode it will retain sharp edges. It will shatter according to planes of, uh, of stress. And so you may make the, the pieces smaller, but they still are angular. They're still sharp. They're sharp as glass. Have you ever cut yourself on a piece of broken glass? And you know how easy it oh, is? Because yeah. it's like, you know, obsidian flakes. It's insidiously, uh, viciously easy to cut yourself on broken glass because it is so pointed and sharp. So he says here over superfine, sharp substrate. That's a code. They know it's glass. How do they know? They're looking at the same damn pictures. Uh, Andrew? Yeah, and not only that, Richard. What I notice is, well, coming back to film again. You know, when you you know you watch like a, some sort of noir film or some car rolling slowly on gravel there's a very different sound to the sound of you know a car wheel rolling slowly to a car wheel rolling fast and in this sound garden that we're hearing right now it really you can hear because remember the rover how fast is the roller ro roller rover roll richard it, it's it's really it's, slow right? it's five times faster than curiosity because its ability to process real time the Hascam imagery, okay. and it rolls at one hundredth, one, I'm sorry, one-tenth of a mile per hour at the fastest speed. And you can hear it stopping and starting. Yeah, exactly. It's squeezing it. You can hear it's like pushing it, spitting it out. It's rolling. If it was going quickly, you'd hear, you know, you'd hear a real, you know, spin, right? But you can yeah. hear that, 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 that achy trundle you know as it moves over it, to me that's what it sounds like it right away i when i heard it i was like whoa mm -hmm. you know 
it's rolling over something and it yeah it i mean i i think today i use the example you know just imagine your fingernails on chalkboard you know it's two hard surfaces mm-hmm. hitting each other it gives it that and there's almost that well i think there. we have and again i need to put up the watson wide angle view taken under the rover uh, of the so-called belly pan which is a whole lot separate discussion where i got that brilliant shaft of light underneath in the shadow showing the prismatic i mean the, nothing but prisms coming off the little shards sand does not give you prisms sand is not transparent sand is opaque glass granules glass shards are transparent they're what give you prisms okay so when when i when i when i put that photograph up you're going to see this visual evidence and then you're going to be able to see the wheels and if i'm right and they're driving across you know miles of shattered glass it's going to wreak havoc with those wheels it's going to chew up those cleats like crazy and in fact if you look at the watson picture they've only driven in what maybe three or four hundred feet and you can already see the dings in the cleats caused by the glass literally carving away a little tiny speck of aluminum and causing a bright reflection against the reddish soil the dust which is clinging to the wheels so all we have to Richard, do is yes i just realized something listen to you describing that i know something that anybody can try that looks and sounds just like that it's on a lesser scale but i remembered once I was repairing an Andy Warhol. Now he did like, you know, posters basically, right? But sometimes they, there was an enhanced version and he used diamond dust because his studio was near the diamond district in New York and you can buy bags of it surprisingly cheap. And a lot of the uh, purveyors probably just gave it to him. And it's incredibly sparkly, incredibly prismatic. And if you have occasion to rub it on itself, like if you're trying to uh, repair a picture, we won't go into details because theoretically you're not supposed to repair artworks, but I worked for a gallery, uh, (laughs) and the stuff falls off. Uh, You have to glue more of it back on. uh, It squeaks and crunches just like that. And Andrew could verify that, not that you've probably repaired a lot of – um, Rothko's or um, Warhol's, but it's uh, it. Uh, I mean, it's not something. Anyway, yeah, diamond dust, diamond dust. People, you could you'd be surprised. You ask at a place that sells diamonds, and they might be able to get you some. And uh, it will cut you. It will tear up aluminum or something like that. Because after all, it's hey diamond, you know. But they use it as an industrial abrasive. But he would get Ron, the stuff that was gem grade. Yeah, I'll Ron, Ron, what 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 did they use, or what did you use to apply the diamond dust? Uh, glue. Oh, I, okay, spray. I, th- I think he means the the, uh, the tool. Yeah, was, the it, tool. was it like a spatula? Uh, you basic no, you basically used a little uh, actually spatula's close. I was thinking a little scoop, and you blew it off the scoop. What with you, with your breath? On, on, yeah, well, you would well you would ma- you would dry mask the area that uh, needed it, but you'd have to see one of the pictures to understand what it was doing. It was an accent, an accent. Well, it was obviously adding a retro reflective uh, brightness, luminance, 
to a to a two-dimensional painting. Right. You could do it any way you liked. I mean, theoretically, if you wanted to do it, in, you know, over the eyes, like it was reflective eyeshadow, you could do it. But usually it was uh, for a different kind of accent. And you, the appropriate area, you would replenish the area with spray on glue and um, then just sprinkle it on there. See, this no, is what I mean. Go ahead. Go ahead. What, yeah, just no. what I mean is that you said it would make a squeaky sound. So you must have been applying it with something hard, right? Like. Oh, well, that's just playing with the diamond dust apart from the putting it on uh, the repair. No, the repair was done very quietly. But oh. then, I still had, then I still had diamond dust. How many people do you know on the radio who say, well, when I used to play with diamond dust. <laughs> exactly. It sounds sound like something out of a bomb film. Say, uh, oh, I was trying to – yeah, I couldn't think of any nefarious uses for it. But oh, it's not yeah. only a wonderful abrasive, but I used it on – So how did you stuff. wind up uh, hearing it, listening to it? Yeah, yeah that's what I'm trying to understand. It makes a very, I, I guess, because it's so hard. Uh-huh. It, you know, if you, yeah, I was, you know, I was grinding it into things, and there were things. Uh-huh. I was doing some rock sculpture, and I was using it to polish the rock sculpture, and I just had, you know, I just had a suitable glove on and was rubbing it into uh-huh. the. Okay, here's uh, an experiment. If you know how to Squid get this Squid. stuff, can you get some? Can you actually do an experiment where you apply it? With a with a with a spatula on the surface, can you record the sounds of that, and then we'll play them side by side on the other side of midnight. You know, I don't know if I can procure any, but I can tell you how to find it fairly. No, 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 no. This is your experiment. Remember, this is your model. Well, I'm great at delegating. I was, I was just, I was just adding a suggestion, and uh, in the middle of that, just to derail things, let me add a. Uh, shout out because I promised her. Haley of Escondido, hi. How you doing? Oh, okay. She was yes, uh, and she was Ron, perfectly. Just Ron, a friend. Just a friend. Yes. Go ahead. So, Ron, on that note, yeah, Richard, I have to um, commend. Uh, well, just thank your listeners. They're amazing people, and tonight, one in particular. You know who you are, and thank you so much. So, I, it's private, but <laughs> there you go. You got a great listenership. Richard. So yeah. Anyway, I'm not dodging the diamond dust uh, story. I just I used to have a bag of it. I did. It was stolen by someone that broke into my place. <laughs> and they took but your it, diamond. How did they know what it was? I said, well, there was a. I have a. I had had a keepsake box, and the stuff in it wasn't. I didn't think of great, any great value to anybody but me. But um, it's, I, can I use the word tweakers? We know what kind of people they, they'll take anything so they can resell it for whatever okay. their needs right. might be. All right. And yeah, and it was I know who it was, but there was nothing I could do about it, and I never got my box. All right, let's let, let, let's soap opera and let's get back on topic. Um, this stuff to yes. me sounds so very, very can, sounds dangerous because if you inhale it, yeah, good okay. God, then you need a. Well, box. it's not it's not quite that fine. I mean, it can be oh. ground up. But it can be well. It's what comes off of polishing and cutting diamonds. So you need anyone who's a diamond cutter, and you might there might even be somebody in your town that is. So are we talking little shards that are visible, or are we talking like cement dust constituents? Constituents. Oh no, it's not like no, it's not like cement dust. Okay. And of course, it doesn't it doesn't break down any farther than it is already. (laughs) Uh, It's just no. This is off of grinders. Grinders okay, okay. and polishers. I mean, there's 
if you want to see some, uh, get a polishing cloth. They, uh, that's, that's diamond dust that's inside the polishing cloth, and you can just shake it out. See, to me, shake it out over the, 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 the major clue here is NASA is admitting wildly that they haven't a clue as to what this is from. And, of course, Keith, the first thing they would think of is something's gone wrong with our $2.7 billion rover. No. And for NASA no. to come out and say they don't know what it is, either they're telling the truth, they don't know, because they have a failure of imagination. Remember, what you can't imagine, you can't see <clears throat> or hear. I'm amending my, my statement earlier. Or they really are hiding that they know what it is because it's not time for the big reveal yet. It's one of those two. Uh, Morse scale. By the Morse scale, anything over about an eight would act like that. It doesn't actually have to be diamonds. I just, it was just a, my experience with diamond dust. You just had some diamond dust now, lying around the house. <clears throat> I, 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 I know, I know. Well, that's why... That's why it wasn't at the tip of my thoughts because I said, "Oh, yeah, that's right. I used to have a bag of that." But stuff. see, this I, I should mean, be this should be. Well, we have a huge audience all over the world. Guys, go out in the backyard, wear goggles, wear gloves, smash some glass into little fine bits in a confined container so the pieces don't fly all over. Then take some metal thing. It can be a, a roller, a wheel. It can be just like a spatula and drag it through it and then record the sounds, send them to me. We'll match them side by side to what it sounds like. We'll actually get spectrograms of the frequencies because one guy on Reddit has done this and this has an incredibly broad spectrum of sound frequencies, but most of them are in the higher order range which means it's something with little mass vibrating at high rate, which again says to me, aluminum wheels on glass are the last thing they expected because they didn't expect the sun glint. They released all this incredible imagery showing the sun glint from the damn dome. And Richard, mm -hmm. when if people do this experiment, make sure you put some good pressure on because the rover is a heavy. It heavy weighs rover. about one ton on Mars, I think. Yeah. So it's not a lightweight. It's a very no. heavy and and the forces on those cleats. Remember, it's kind of like the old uh, story about why did uh, Eastern Airlines forbid its stewardesses back when they had stewardesses uh, from wearing high heels because when they had air you know, um, uh, turbulence, they literally had stewardesses stuck in the floor because the pressure of the sudden updraft would literally um, punch their needle spiked high heels into the aluminum floor through the carpet. And they learned from bitter experience, no, do not let your stews wear high heels. Real story, not apocryphal, real story. Which okay. then would I remember hearing that? Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, we've Which, got about ten minutes. Where do we want to take this? What's 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 the big picture? What should we remember? Science is nothing if it's not prediction. What should we predict if this model is what we all think it is tonight? 
I'm voting for the helicopter. Uh, oh. I want to see video from the helicopter of, you know, down sun with the sun up behind the helicopter at any altitude, and they're going to send it up like a 1,000 feet. Can you imagine what the landscape will look like in the form of sun glare, retro reflection, color, prisms? It's going to be staggeringly beautiful, incredibly revealing, and NASA may not notice at all. So they won't know how to censor it because to them, it's just another weirdness of Mars. Yeah. And Richard, Hmm. just in terms of um, taking people back to these ancient, ancient times for us, and we won't go to my image, but when you have time, go and have a look at my number two, Mysterious Domes. I mean, it's just a big, big conjecture on my part. But I, I, I did one of my drawings sort of in a nighttime vision with light spilling out from this dome all over the Martian landscape. And just go and look at that image when you get a chance and imagine what that would have looked like when all the internal light was just just exploding out of this dome. And it, it would have been – what a sight that might have been. Well, that's one we cannot recreate, but yeah, it's very dramatic there. Oh, wow. Look at that. Look at that. See, what I'm really impressed by no end is if you go back to my images and you look at number, I think it's 11, uh, 12, I'm sorry, 12. Everybody look at 12, okay? What do you see? Well, structure and layers. Yes. Yeah. That's not an atmosphere. No, that's, that's nothing not. natural. I mean, how did they manage, again, the mutineers inside? Did they know what they were heading into? Did they arrange during that descent so that Percy took this horizon picture, high-res horizon picture of the stunning geometry of the dome over Jezero? Because that ain't atmosphere. In fact, you can even see, look how it gets, remember, the sun is behind you, okay? Uh, I lost it, there we are. Okay, the sun is behind you, which means that's all backscatter. Notice how the first uh, layer is bright, then there's a dark trough, then there's a second layer, right? Then there's another dark trough, but the farthest dark trough is much darker, then the one in between, and then you go to another bright layer, and then you go to space, okay? Top of the atmosphere. Why is it getting progressively darker as it reaches the end of the atmosphere? Because you're at the Terminator. You're late afternoon. You're looking at sunset behind you and darkness racing toward you, illuminating various portions of the raised portions of the dome with the shadowing from the direct sun, because this stuff also is optically thick. It is diminishing the light that goes through, which means it has substantial mass. That's why the shadowing is progressive from the foreground to the background in a three-dimensional. This might explain why there's so much noise in the sky on uh, earlier pictures from any of the rovers, uh, because... You know, you're saying what you don't have a com- you don't have something to compare it to, so there's no point of reference. You know, it's, I was uh, that's bugged me for years. You know, you look at it and you see all of this uh, 
unevenness and uh, noise factors in any place blank, but specifically in the skies. And you go, why is that? Why can't it just take a clear picture of the sky? It's supposed to be a nice camera. And that goes for everything, you know, from the for, from um, Sojourner up through Perseverance. And uh, maybe that's why. It's the, um, it's the remnants of glass that it's looking through. And that's to be make- continued. John, again, congratulations. Indeed. I think your model is Thank amply you. confirmed. And there's all kinds of stuff for Percy to explore. What the Chinese are going to do is unknown. The fact that the president has picked a hand-picked, trustable confidant from decades in the Senate to be the head of what I think is now the most important agency of the United States government. I don't think that's an accident. And all I can say is stay tuned because the best is yet to come. My guests this morning have been Ron Gerbron and Andrew Curry. And again, I want to tip the hat to Ron for an amazing model that turns out from an extraordinary set of evidence gathered by Perseverance landing at Yezero to be absolutely true. Tomorrow night, change of subject. We're going deep under the sea for myths and monsters. And until then, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.